Welcome to NSP Presents Me and Mikey Talk. Our goal with these talks is to have fun and make the most complicated and important concepts in philosophy, theory, and ideology critique interesting and accessible. In the 20th century, we maybe tried to change the world too quickly. The time is to interpret it again. Welcome to Lacan Part 2, featuring the dangerous maybe, if you missed it a week and a half ago, I think, when we did Part 1. No worries, it's here on the channel. We'll do a little bit of summary work, but um, we did do a lot of setup last time. So I want to welcome to the... Welcome, welcome to the chat, uh, The Dangerous Maybe. Are you there? Hey. Can you hear me okay? Yep. I uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, your blog. Okay, so uh, I have a blog on Medium called The Dangerous Maybe, and I guess you would say the core purpose of it is to help make difficult philosophy, difficult critical theory intelligible uh, for a broader audience. And um, currently working on my first book, and I'm going to be incorporating a lot of these Lacanian slash Zizekian concepts into my book. And yeah, tonight we're going to basically pick up where we left off last time and just discuss some more of the basic Lacanian concepts. So let's see how I've got a bunch of notes listed here, different uh, bullet points, but I'm not sure how many we'll get through. We'll see where the discussion takes us. Great. And uh, in the chat, thank you to the person who's letting me know that my voice was all messed up. This, um, you know, when you, when you drop a lot of money on something for once because you're used to never buying nice equipment and then you actually have like a decent audio assembly and then it gives you issues like this, you you just, you just, you just, you hate to see it, but that's what, that's what's happening. So I'm a... Trying to get this all switched over here. Um, I guess we're going to simplify today, and I'm going to just go ahead and say we're not using the personal website. Uh, We're just going to stay on YouTube. Everything here today is just YouTube-based. A lot of the stuff I do when I'm streaming is is instead based off of Twitch, but Twitch is more casual stuff. Um, I, I see this as more of a way of uh, YouTube is better for lectures. YouTube is better for focused things because YouTube allows people to go back and then fast forward to catch up. And uh, if you're if you really care about not coming in on the middle of something and asking a question that's probably already been asked, uh, like I do, I care about that, then I prefer YouTube for those kinds of things. So we're just going to keep this one straight on uh, straight to YouTube. Um, so yeah, Last time we talked about the symbolic, the imaginary, and the real. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground last time. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, and we kind of, I think we we got to the real, and we started working on some of the aspects of the real. We, we touched on objet petit a a little bit, um, but we didn't get too much further into the register of the real. So I guess what I can try to do uh, is just give a brief, I don't know how helpful it'll be because it'll be so brief, but a brief summary of what we did last time. And great. So what we discussed, uh, 
we, we were laying out the basic concepts of Lacanian psychoanalysis. And for Lacan, the three broadest concepts are the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. And for lack of a better term, we can say that these three categories or registers or orders map the human condition. Um, they're the, again, for lack of a better term, they're the three main areas of human subjectivity or human ontology. And so with the imaginary, what you more or less have is the conscious ego and basically all of the things we identify with, the things that we would say that we are, I like this, I don't like that, um, that kind of thing. It, it's more of the conscious sense of self. Um, but for Lacan, this is all based on a misrecognition because when we start to say I am this or I like that and we start to build our sense of self out of these exterior images or objects, then we're misrecognizing ourselves. We are not the things that we identify with. And yet there is no ego for Lacan outside of this uh, system of misrecognition that we build our sense of ego, our sense of identity out of misidentifying. It's, it, it, you know, the most basic one, as we talk about, is identifying ourselves with our mere image. So the young infant doesn't have a sense of self. The young image, uh, the young infant body is fragmented. It lacks motor coordination. Uh, and what perceiving its imago, its mere image does, is give the baby a sense of wholeness. And it's through identifying with this external image, this image in the mirror, that the ego comes into being, right? And so from then on, all of the various things that we identify with help to shape and constitute our ego. And you see this, I mean, teenagers always, you know, love to put up posters in their rooms. They decorate their rooms. And you can see the, the teenager's bedroom as one big ego, right? But, of course, the problem, again, is that you are not any of these images that you identify with. And so the imaginary, there's much more going on with it than that. But the most basic way to think of it is it's the ego, and the ego is made out of a whole network of I, images that it misrecognizes as itself. And so that's more of our conscious reality. Then the symbolic order, that has to do with language, with custom, with law, with prohibition. Um, it has to do with basically the social order. And the main the main emphasis is on language. Language is the symbolic order. Lacan also calls the symbolic order the big other. And <clears throat> so it, it has to do with all of our ideals, right? Our values, uh, our sense of what is appropriate, what is not. Um, again, law, prohibition, these kind of things. And then the real, the third order, has to do with and it's you know it's known to be the most complicated order to discuss but it's basically the gap in this what what we call reality so for lacan the imaginary order and the symbolic order work together to form what we think of as our social waking reality and the real 
has to do with the gaps in our reality. All of the things that we that are repressed or we fail to recognize or um, that don't have immediate access to consciousness. It would have to do with uh, traumas or, I mean, on a social level, it would be with uh, social dynamics that we as a society can't face because they're too problematic. We can't confront them. Uh, it'd be too traumatizing. Right. It would break apart our sense of reality. And many things are going to be associated with the real. He's going to associate jouissance. He's going to associate drive, fundamental fantasy uh, to some degree, trauma, and various other things. But um, as we discuss this, hopefully we'll flesh this out where uh, this makes a lot more sense. Again, it's very hard to summarize at this level because it's so broad. But yeah, it's almost a problem, it, and I, I, I think I, at this point I would recommend if you're coming in on this and you don't have you you're not familiar with Lacan and you didn't see the first part, go watch the first part. It is on this channel. Um, someone could link it in the in the chat if they want to, but. Hey, it's there for it's there for a reason though. So I'm I'm going to answer one question since it's a good time to answer it. Uh, cool. Illegal and free asked, "Is this why Lacan apparently denies the ego?" My professor last semester said that constantly, and he didn't ex uh, wouldn't expand. So yeah, here's the thing: Lacan's big enemies uh, were the ego psychologists, and after Freud, a lot of Freud's followers and the students of his followers, uh, this is especially true in America, they came to put all the emphasis in psychoanalysis on building up the ego, strengthening the ego, right? A lot of our, you know, this idea of self-esteem and building self-esteem <clears throat> has to do with ego psychology. And Lacan totally rejects it, and he thinks it's a total betrayal of the Freudian endeavor, right? Because psychoanalysis is about dealing with the unconscious, not the ego. Um, it, it's hard to see how any of these um, psychologists could even use Freud for this. But the, the point for Lacan is that the key aspects of who we are, the key, for lack of a better term, coordinates, the, the, the big factors that determine our subjectivity, to, to determine our desire, they don't exist at the level of the ego. Right, it's the unconscious that is important here, and this is why Lacan is doing what he called a return to Freud. And in doing a return to Freud, yeah, he's rethinking many Freudian concepts, but he's also trying to get back to the core of Freud's insight, and that was, you know, the 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 primacy of the unconscious, that the unconscious is structured like a language, and. Um, so, yeah, Lacan is like, the, the first thing you have to do in psychoanalysis is get past imaginary dynamics, right? Ego to alter ego dynamics. That's, you know, this is the first thing you have to get past if you're going to make any progress in psychoanalysis. So, um, it's not that you never, it's not that you stop having an ego after you go through Lacanian psychoanalysis. That doesn't happen. It's just that it, the ego is... It's a whole set of misrecognition, right? It's all of this stuff that we think at the conscious level is so important to us really isn't the 
the substance, in quotes, of our being or lack of being, it's not what the, the ego and the content of the ego is not the determining factor in human desire and human subjectivity. And so right. that's why he wants, he's saying you're making this fundamental mistake in approaching analysis uh, from the perspective that you're supposed to build up the ego. In some sense, you're supposed to tear it down uh, and get to much more fundamental factors of human subjectivity. So, yeah, I hope hopefully that'll that kind of gives an answer to that question. But well, I mean, and in the same, I mean, I, I kind of people brought up Jung last time. You kind of touched on it, you know, but in your own way. And I wanted to bring up my own way, and that's just to say that if a person is um, borderline or on a manic bipolar, uh, sp- uh, you know, spiral or uh, schizophrenic or um, like whatever their neurosis might be, it's something that's giving them a lot of a lot of grief in the world, right? Um, the Jungian kind of approach is utterly fucked. It's like being like, here, oh, you're you're fucked up? Here, take some mushrooms. Right? <laughs> oh, you're fucked up? Here, uh, don't worry about it. Reality is just a bunch of fucking archetypes anyway, and like, you're on a hero's quest. Don't tell a schizophrenic person they're on a fucking hero's quest. They already know that. They know it too well. In fact, that's their problem. Right? And so, like, Lacan, it... it, it is it kind of opposed not just to like the American psychology thing, but just this idea that psychology is about, oh, don't worry, you know, by talking to me, I'll help you get to your true self, right? And well, yeah, that's he totally rejects that. And look, for me, as somebody who's so inspired by Lacan, everybody wants to bring up Jung, right? Because one of the big, I guess you would say, antagonisms or battles in theory circles would be Lacan versus Jung, but I've only read a little bit of Jung, and Jung just didn't ever interest me much, but I don't, it's like I don't have these takedowns of Jung because, to be honest, I haven't studied him enough to make a really fair criticism. Uh, what I do know doesn't resonate, but... Um, I don't know if what I said was fair, except that I can just definitely say people who think that you should go around validating the uh, the imaginary that uh, is being espoused out of the mouth of a person who's in a delusional state, um, I would say it's it's pretty fucked. Like, don't do that. If, um, if that. if that's what he's getting at. I mean, I don't know if there's really a place for the real in Jung. I would have to, you know, I would have to read up on Jung it, uh to make that call, I, I the a lot of Lacanians will say part of the problem with Jung is that he believes in a big other, like an other of the other, that there is this this cosmic kind of text written into reality, and that that text is not a matter of just human social convention and, as you and I would put it, the arbitrariness of the signifier. Mm. It is meaning with a capital M, and for Lacan, that is the the only type of human being that actually believes in meaning with a capital M through and through is the psychotic mm-hmm. and uh, the, the paranoid schizophrenic. Right. And so I've seen, I believe it was Adrian Johnston. Uh, I might be misquoting, but I'm thinking it's Adrian Johnston in his book called Irrepressible Truth, 
which is his commentary on one of the writings in Lacan's Decree, and he talks about this where Jungian analysis basically makes the universe into a schizophrenic universe because it it ascribes meaning in reality itself. And I didn't and, even read this. I all, all I can do is speak from personal experience and say that there was a time when I was on a manic episode. And there were people who just fed the delusion. Like they just, they just thought it was fun. And it's just like, that shit's fucked. Don't do that. I but, think that reality checks are important. <laughs> yeah, but let's be honest. But there, there's also a sense where there's, there's a difference between Jung and Jungian. Just like there's a difference between Deleuze and Deleuzeans. Um, a lot of what's done in the name of Jung, I don't, you know... Would Jung affirm it? Probably not. Okay, um, fair. And so I think, you know, I, I just, I feel like I just don't know enough about Jung to be the kind of Lacanian that bashes them. It's like, I would have to do my homework, and I really wish there was a book. I, there needs to be a book, right? Uh, basically dealing with Lacan versus Jung, but unfortunately we ha- we don't have that book. Mm. So. Um, well, okay. I, well, I'll I'll uh, I'll just go ahead and bracket that off for now, and we can kind of come back to it. Uh, side note, and this is a side note, but we've we're we're a few tangents away from getting onto the main topic. So, do you know Peter Rollins was was someone who's on my you know he's on my podcast. Uh, I met him. Uh, he likes Lacan. He does some videos about Lacan. Um, and we we did a Sublime Object of Ideology by Slavoj Žižek reading group with. Uh, Peter Rollins last year, um, the two of us, uh, Michael Downs and myself. And uh, when we did that, uh, or, or he, he, you know, he, people ask him, people always bring up depth psychology. What's the difference between depth psychology and psychoanalysis? And what's the difference between psychoanalysis, how we tend to think of it or use it in the U.S. versus Lacan? Like, well, it's very different. And the best, the best discussion I've found on that so far is on the New Symbolization Project um, YouTube channel. And Michael, I don't know if you ever saw this. I just discovered it last week, and I meant to share it with you, but I, did, I forgot. Someone came to the Peter Rollins lecture that we, that we published on that page, right, uh, to that video. Someone in the comment sections, I, I think they come off like they, they, they're defending you, I think. And, and, they, and they accuse Peter Rollins of, of a lot of things. And Peter Rollins like engages them, and it's kind of like when you have someone who's like kind of you don't know if they're a troll or if they're just like upset or you know, you're not really sure what's going on. But mm-hmm. Rollins like was very careful, very respectful, and like engaged with them in conversation for like ten comments. And these things are long. It's like it's you get a little <laughs> get a little Peter Rollins essay there, and. Uh, it's definitely worth sharing, and I'll share it later in the chat. Oh, cool. But the other thing I want to say, order of business-wise, is just that I just shared the link for the Discord in the chat. If you, Once we actually launch in, if you ask a question that's off-topic, we're not going to address it in the middle of the what we're talking about, if we're in the middle of like a complex thing here. But um, we'll try to get to it at the end if we can. If not, don't worry about it. Put it in the Discord chat. So if you go to the Discord, uh, once you get cleared... Once you get clearance in the Discord, you can go down to guest lectures, and then you'll find the dangerous maybe in there. So anyway, so well, I just want to add well, before we 
pivot on to something else. Okay. The whole thing about depth psychology, I can tell you this. The problem with depth psychology is, at least from the Lacanian perspective, and Zizek would agree with this too, is that it's looking for the unconscious in the wrong place. And that sounds funny, but for Lacan and for Zizek, the unconscious is not something buried away at the bottom of the mind, right? That's precisely what they reject, mm. is that the unconscious is not this cauldron of, you know, id-like impulses, uh, animalistic impulses, and it's not this, I guess you would say, the system of meaning, of Jungian archetypes, right? It's, it, it, and there's no true self buried deep down. Um, it's funny, what I was gonna discuss tonight uh, discussed tonight lends itself to this. I was going to talk about some of the stuff in Zizek's book, The Plague of Fantasies, and even though I hadn't planned on it, Zizek mm. talks about this, and he says, look, um, the unconscious is outside. That, that's a direct quote. Um, on, uh, let's see, is it page one here? Yeah, page one of The Plague of Fantasies. Uh, I'm just going to read, and look, I... I gathered up some quotes last time we didn't we kept away from the quotes but i'm going to use some tonight because i think they're really helpful but jizek uh, says the unconscious is outside not hidden in any unfathomable depths or to quote the x-files motto the truth is out there and so what this means is when you're actually doing psychoanalysis right you're not you're not trying to wait for some instance uh, for some deep truth, right? The unconscious is right out there on the surface of the, the patient's discourse. It's, it's out there in language, right? And this is, I mean, it's psychoanalysis is the talking cure, right? It's through free association, which is where the patient sits there and says what comes to mind or does the best job they can of saying what just immediately comes to mind that the unconscious manifests itself and the unconscious manifests itself in formations they're called formations of the unconscious and this just is slips of the tongue it's all the standard stuff slips of the tongue it can happen in jokes um it's when you you botch an action you're trying to accomplish something but you, you mess it up in a certain way there's these various ways that the unconscious reveals itself and I mean, the most like, it's almost like obscene how uh, typical it is. But, to, you know, to make the point, you're on a date and whoever you're on a date with, they look over to you and they're saying, hey, would you like a slice of bread? And you go, yeah, I'd love a slice of bed. Right. I'd love some head. I Right. And so what you get in that slip of the tongue, in that parapraxis, is there's a desire beneath what you as an ego would say, right? There's this other aspect of you, but it's not buried deep down. It's right there. It's right there present in language, and it's outside you in the sense that it's out there in language, in the symbolic order. And this is the Lacanian subject, in a sense, right? And there's different ways to talk about the Lacanian subject. But it is the subject of the unconscious. And so you as an ego, you don't want to say that. It's not like you had, you didn't want to say that. But some other aspect of you 
show, you know, it's, it, you know, poke through your discourse, right? Revealed right. itself in this uh, particular formation of language. And that's what the unconscious is. And so he rejects this idea that the unconscious is this mysterious thing, always shrouded, always veiled. Like you never have, like it's, it's always making itself known. That's the thing is it, if you, that's why in psychoanalysis, a lot of the times analysts will tell you it doesn't matter if the patient lies, because even if you sit there and you lie, the truth is still going to slip out. You're still going to make a Freudian slip. You're still going to do something that reveals the truth of your unconscious desire. So even if you lie, you're still going to tell the truth and at some point. Right. So <clears throat> this is his rejection of the... Uh, the idea of depth psychology, right? The point is the unconscious is way, it's always already outside. It's visible all the time. You just have to know how to look for it. And so I'm going to give two examples here before we move on. Cause they're just fun examples, right? So, uh, let's see. All right. Well, that one's a bit long. Um, I, we might've touched on it last time, but Zizek has this example of, the three toilets and he says that the unconscious ideological frameworks of, of Fran uh, the French of the German and of the American slash British the these different ideologies are embodied in their various toilet designs the Germans the French and the uh, Anglo, you know, the, the, uh, the British and Americans, we have this different uh, toilet architecture. And Zizek talked about it. He says, in a traditional German lavatory, the hole in which shit disappears after we flush water is way in the front so that the shit is first laid out for us to sniff at and inspect for traces of some illness. In the typical French lavatory, on the contrary, the hole is in the back, that is, the shit is supposed to disappear as soon as possible. Finally, the Anglo-Saxon, English or American, lavatory presents a kind of synthesis, a mediation between these two poles. Basin of water, uh, the basin is full of water so that the shit floats in it, visible but not to be inspected. Right, And so he goes down and he draws out how basically the unconscious of each of these societies is there in the design of their toilets. So he says, Hegel was among the first to interpret the geographical triad Germany, France, England as expressing three different existential attitudes. German reflective thoroughness, French revolutionary hastiness, English moderate utilitarian pragmatism. In terms of po political stance, this triad can be read as German conservatism, French revolutionary radicalism, and English moderate liberalism. In terms of the predominance of one of the spheres of social life, it is German metaphysics and poetry versus French politics and English economy. The reference to the laboratories enables us not only to discern the same triad in the most intimate domain of performing the excremental function, but also to generate the underlying mechanism of this triad in the three different attitudes towards excremental excess. And so uh, he goes on, ambiguous contemplative fascination, the hasty attempt to get rid of the unpleasant excess as fast as possible, 
The pragmatic approach to treat the excess as an ordinary object to be disposed of in an appropriate way. So it is easy for an academic to claim at a round table that we live in a post-ideological universe. The moment he visits the restroom after the heated discussion, he is again knee-deep in ideology. So that was uh, classic, classic yeah. Zizek. But that shows you the, that the unconscious that is outside, right? He also talks about it in terms of Soviet architecture. He does a whole thing. It's it's some of his best stuff. It's in the is that the introduction to uh, the plague of fantasies? It's the preface. Uh, I highly recommend that preface if that's all you read from the book. Um, it'll be worth it. Let's see, making sure here. Wait, was that the preface? No, I'm sorry. That was the introduction. Yeah. Well, no. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me find it. On this theme of... It's from the first chapter, The Seven Veils of Fantasy. It's mm. at the beginning of the first chapter. Mm. On this and... on this theme of... Oh, you're still going. Okay, go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say on the theme of what it's not, of what Lacan is not up to. Um, I think I might have gotten this from Lionel Bailey's introduction. But the but the ego in this tradition is understood almost the opposite of how it's understood in the American inheritance of it. The very positivist, you know, uh, modern, uh, you know, imperial, capitalist, individualist, uh, you know, subjectivist kind of approach to ego psychology. That's the American approach. Uh, the the Lacanian one, that 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 ego is not a substantive. Or concrete, or or sort of like it's it, it's 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 making up for for a, for a dilemma, for a series of contradictions and problems. Um, it's it's it is the the ego is a fissure or a scab or a or a wound um, that is sort of like a, a, a trying to cope with uh, the these breaks in, in existence, um, which is utterly. Yeah, to the complete opposite of of this idea that it's like this wholeness that we can get back to this other, which is by the way also there's like fascist undertones to the idea of like a, an authentic wholeness like that. Oh, we've just been removed from that, and now we can just ex- excavate back to it, you know, through through the therapeutic process. Yeah, 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 I agree. And so here's here's how I would state it though. So. <clears throat> I, I, even though he doesn't really give him credit, Lacan was influenced by Sartre's work on the ego, the transcendence of the ego. Mm. And for Sartre and for Lacan, the ego is not something intrinsic to consciousness. It's something that consciousness builds from exterior exteriority, from external things, right? It builds the sense of egoic consciousness out of the external world. And so for Lacan, it's my reflection in the mirror. I'm not that reflection in the mirror and that reflection in the mirror is not intrinsic to consciousness but what happens is that the reflection in the mirror gives consciousness a sense of wholeness because now i'm like before that the baby is just this fragmented body right it's it's helpless because it has no motor control no unified control of its body it's just kind of you know uh this is polymorphous uh uh, perverse right where there, the the body hasn't gained a sense of wholeness, and it hasn't been given parts 
through language, right? Language, or we would call it society, right? It imposes, you can't show this part of your body. This part of your body's for this. That, like, right? The, the body's not cut up through signifiers. It's, it's not interpreted. And so the first thing that happens is that the uncoordinated infant who is suffering from this fragmented body it sees itself in the mirror it makes the identification and it goes oh that's me and through that it gets a sense of wholeness because there's an image it can latch onto right and it's actually through this that it's able to start gaining control over itself and that's the thing with the imaginary though it's all tied up with a sense of wholeness so aggressivity is an a is a fundamental aspect of this whole imaginary order because the imaginary order is all about gaining that sense of wholeness right through various images through things you identify with well you say you, you meet somebody and they're they're very much like you well you you have this aggressive reaction to them because you feel like they're taking some part of you and you're not whole now you're fragmented again you're lacking and uh, so aggressivity is built into um, the ego and built into the imaginary because anything that is there to destabilize the ego or oh now you're lacking you're not complete right that's met with aggression or aggressivity it makes it a, aggression for Lacan is just like what we call aggression like violent outbursts but aggressivity is this more structural fundamental thing that has to do with anybody attacking your ego or you feeling that somebody's taken your sense of identity um, and yet at the same time right it, at first somebody who's very similar to you, you meet them with aggressivity because you feel like they're a threat to your identity and yet if one of you gives right it, it, a lot of the times friendships are forged out of this and it's somebody you uh, you come to love right like the whole thing with love and hate the thin line right here in, in when it comes to the ego so if they so, are like you they can actually come to reaffirm your existence because they've already made those identifications for themselves so at first it seems like they're a threat to your identity but if you come to identify with each other you reflect each other in a way that's positive or affirmative and so you can actually come to love this person because they're just reflecting the image of yourself that you want to have back to you great and and so this how does that tie into to f the idea of like fundamental fantasy and and what is the fundamental fantasy like if if we're talking about the imaginary the real and the symbolic what is a fundamental fantasy in relation to to those three things okay well that's i'm glad you, you uh went there because I, I definitely wanted to talk about fantasy tonight. So this is great. So let me see. I'm not looking at YouTube right now. Um, on the board, you might want to put up the formula for fundamental fantasy. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go over there. By the way, folks, what I was just putting on the screen right now is the uh, the Discord channel for the Dangerous Maybe, the under guest lectures on my, on my Discord. So I'm just putting that up on screen so that if anybody wants to cash like longer term questions there, they can do that. Now I'm going to go ahead and hop onto the whiteboard. So let's see. Okay. 
Okay, you remember, it's the barred S, the barred subject, and then the little diamond-shaped lozenge, and then the little lowercase a. Like that? Let me see. I'm, there's a lag here. Hold on. Yeah, so money sign, diamond, little a. Um, do I need more room? Should I erase the, uh, the imaginary symbolic and real? Hold on. On the video, you're just now getting to the board. No, that's fine. But should I erase the uh, the stuff in the middle of the board? Or... Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can take the three orders off now. Okay. There so I, I just built this shelf, but it's not nailed down yet because I'm going to paint it tomorrow. Uh -huh. So it just I wanted to explain that for the people who might have noticed how... I, markers keep falling off of it because <laughs> it keeps yeah. sliding out and they fall through. Anyway. Okay, so what we're going to do, we're going to touch briefly on the bar. There, there's three components to this, right? For Lacan, this is fundamental fantasy or the formula for fundamental fantasy. Now, this gets trickier when we start talking about the clinical structures, which I know you want me to go into that so much, but we'll have to do it another time because, again, I'm not really prepared to go in depth with, with the clinical structures. But for Lacan, he talked about these various clinical structures and you have neurosis and then under neurosis you have uh, obsessional neurosis or hysteria. You also have perversion and you also have psychosis, right? Um, so the hysteric and the obsessive and the pervert, they all have different structures to their fundamental fantasies. However, the one that's up on the board right now, Bard S, diamond-shaped A, that also is the obsessive's fundamental fantasy. And Lacan thinks that the obsessive fundamental fantasy, at the most abstract, broad, structural level, is the fantasy is the formula for fantasy, fundamental fantasy as such, right? It's, it, it gets at the bare bones of it. But when you get into the, the, the meat, the details of the differences between obsessive, hysteric, and pervert, you're going to find three different formulas for fundamental fantasy. And so maybe at some point in the future, we'll come back and get into that. Material. And so, you know, I, I get that you're not going to go into it further. And like I said last time, folks, and if you don't remember this, getting a Lacanian to talk about anything Lacan related in any detail is very difficult. If you ever want to have fun and you hear someone drop in Lacanian uh, uh, jargon, just start asking them what they're talking about and keep pushing in because beyond Michael Downs, I've never found a person who really can without getting outside of the jargon because it's, they're so in it, they can't get outside of it. And, and it's because they haven't spent enough time outside of grad school talking to, you know, normal people. Anyway, uh, or because they're too afraid of uh, you know fellow academics trying to take them down. It's like academia for for people who are in really niche fields, especially in the humanities, can often just be like a hotbed of cancel culture. But it's like a weird kind of cancel culture where it's like in academic journals and people trying to be like, your take on Objetia was bullshit, and here's why. And it's like five you know five hundred pages of of trying to take you down. But but you know, the whole time probably mischaracterizing you from the offset just because they're trying to publish for the sake of publishing because there's a lot of that going on as well. So 
there's a anyway that's my that's my dunk on on academia but the thing i'll say about those clinical structures that we, we can't get into obsessive hysteric perverse and uh, psych, the, 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 the psychotic is just that um when when you have talked about that that's 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 what you have already said has been given me a lot of traction already with things it, to the point that i would say it was probably these plus the mirror stage and just like maybe three other things that we talked about last time that over time have grown to me being like, yeah, no, I have to read Lacan. I have to read a lot of Lacan. I never really would have thought that. I, for years, wouldn't have thought that. When it comes to theory, I was just, mm, no, no, I'm not going to mess with it. But now I'm like, yeah, well, these are really, these are really useful. But as far as the theory of subjectivity, though, the, this idea of a fundamental fantasy. So if the obsessive, so the, the obsessive is kind of like, a sort of default from which other ones are going to, the other ones are going to be sort of, they vary from it in, in, in important ways, right? No, here's the thing. So this is, and a lot of this, right, I'm still working out. That's why even okay. I'm you know, like, I, you know, I need to really refine my understanding of the clinical structures before I can do a lecture on them. But okay. for Lacan, from what I've read, hysteria is actually the primary form of, neurosis and obsession or obsessive neurosis is the modification of it of that structure so it's bizarre that the obsessive fundamental fantasy is primary again i don't know how they sort all of this out i i trust me if i ever got a chance to talk to a lacanian this would be one of the main topics i want to work on with them because it's hard to find the closest we have to a systematic layout of the clinical structures is Bruce Fink's book, a clinical introduction to Lacanian psychoanalysis. Mm. Lacan or Zizek does a lot of great stuff with them. But the thing is he does, he makes these, he'll say something about the pervert on one page and then 10 pages later, he'll say something about the hysteric. He doesn't just lay out these clinical structures in detail. So what I've been doing is, you know, uh, doing word searches in PDFs and I'm putting together as many of these quotes as I can into one file so I can see like, I'm trying to get the broad scope of these clinical structures and I'm basically doing the groundwork for a lecture on, them, but it's just not ready yet. Okay, fair. Um, and so the point is though, we can, we can even leave aside that. I just wanted to say that in passing, but all of us basically have a fundamental fantasy. And what the fundamental fantasy... It, it, Zizek talks about this, again, in Plague of Fantasies. And it's his best treatment of fantasy uh, is the first chapter. And he talks about the seven veils of fantasy. So fantasy covers over seven different things, right? Or, or it, 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 it serves as a screen, a buffer, um, misdirection... For various things, right? And here I'm only going to touch on the first four. The other ones get they get more into the details of it, and you can kind of lose track of. What, you want to get at the core of what fundamental fantasy does. And so here's the thing. Before we do this, I want to say a couple things about the Bard S, mm. and then we'll talk about the little diamond shape, and then we'll do a quick review of Objet Petit A, and then we'll go into fantasy. Because it helps to know what each of those little symbols means before we go into it. So, I found a good little quote uh, from Sean Homer. 
I think this is one of the best summaries or summary definitions of the Lacanian subject, right? <clears throat> so Sean Homer says, the Lacanian subject is, therefore, constituted through two movements. The first corresponds to the process of alienation through language, the second to the separation of desire. Lacan never, however, precisely designates the point at which the subject appears, because it never appears as such. The subject in Lacanian psychoanalysis has no permanence or persistence. Lacan always refers to the subject as arriving or having just arrived, as always too early or too late. There is never a point in time that the subject can be said to finally emerge as a stable and complete entity. It emerges only fleetingly through a continuous process of subjectification, alienation and separation, rather than at a specific moment in time. Okay, so here's the, here's the thing. It goes back to what I was saying earlier, right, where the subject, the Lacanian subject, the subject of desire, the subject of the unconscious, all of these being the same thing, right, they, it manifests itself through formations of the unconscious, through these linguistic nodal points, right? Um, slips of the tongue, a symptom, right? Uh, somebody goes into psychoanalysis because they have a symptom. Well, the symptom is um, a message from the unconscious. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, once the, the, the symptom is decoded and interpreted, uh, the, the idea is that the symptom will then dissolve itself. It's not that you'll ever be symptomless, but that particular symptom as a message will dissolve because the message of it from the unconscious will have been made conscious. And so the point is that with the Lacanian subject, it's not like it's a person behind the person. It's all right. It's not like we can go to say to the uh, like conscious egoic sense of self hey step aside i want to talk to the other person in you right. right it's not like the analyst can say all right i've talked to the ego enough move aside now i want to talk for an extended period with the subject it doesn't work like that at all the subject is only its manifestations through these formations um it's it's not it, you can't sit there and talk with the unconscious subject like you do with the ego and I mean, of course, there's a sense in which it's always there because you never know when a slip of the tongue or a manifestation of the unconscious is going to occur. But it's not there in the way that you as a egoic person can sit there and constantly keep talking about yourself. Um, and so this idea of it, it's always just arriving or having just arrived or it just left, right? It, it, it manifests itself through some form of speech or communication and then it's gone. And um, these other aspects of the unconscious, like fundamental fantasy, it's part of the unconscious, right? A lot of the times you, you don't have any awareness of any of this, right? And yet it determines your whole subjectivity. And it's similar to like, like dark matter, right? Astrophysicists will posit dark matter because you have to posit it to make sense of certain things going on in reality. But you don't perceive the dark matter as such, that's what's going on with the unconscious or the unconscious subject, right? Uh, it make, it, it's a hypothesis that makes sense of all this stuff you see in the clinic, but it's not there present like in this permanent way where you can just talk to the unconscious. It doesn't work that way. So the point, though, is this, this unconscious subject emerges through 
what Lacan calls castration or symbolic castration. Or, in other words, when when some external authority steps in and puts limits on your enjoyment, now it's as if you've been castrated, right? You've lost something. And some part of you has been castrated. Now, it's not a physical organ. It's not a part of your physical body. But when language is uh, brought into play, when you have to obey the laws of language and then you have to accept the prohibition that you can't just enjoy yourself however you want, whenever you want, right? All of this works together as, you know, all of the mechanisms for socialization. And yet it means something has to be sacrificed. Now, the trick is that you never, you never really gave up anything. There's, there's not an actual physical object or a physical part of your body you gave up. If anything, it's just a kind of like almost just a pure freedom of enjoyment. But the thing is, babies don't live in a constant, you know, eternal bliss. They're always fussing. Sometimes they're happy. Sometimes they're not, right? They don't have this pure concentrated enjoyment or jouissance that we take them to have. But once you enter language and once now you you know my behavior has to be mediated through certain customs through certain protocols it's as if we lost an immediate enjoyment that we never really had to begin with but this is what the pro accepting the prohibition involves you know this is what happens with socialization is it's as if you lost some core aspect of your being and that is that that sense of the remainder that that missing uh, chunk of yourself that's what he's going to call objet petit a the the little a that you see on the board and so the bard s is the subject of desire well to desire means to lack something that's why you desire if you didn't lack the thing you wouldn't desire the thing and so the bard subject is the part of you that's desiring, the part of you that's lacking, and moving towards that which will uh, complete you. But again, this isn't this isn't the wholeness of the imaginary, right? This this is all going on in the real, at the unconscious level. Even those signifiers and language are part of it, right? Um, th this kind of structure is uh, not one. It's not like you're dealing with images that you identify with here, and so <clears throat> you are this relation to the lost object you are the you are the relation it's not that you're just purely the barred subject you are the barred subject in relation to the missing part of yourself that you posit at the unconscious level and it's the very fact that you are this relation that is in a sense the lacanian subject right um bruce fink's famous book on lacan the lacanian subject you look at the subtitle it is between language and jouissance. So the Lacanian subject is between language and jouissance or enjoyment. So objet petit a, that little part of yourself that you unconsciously posit that you are missing, it's like a concentrated little chunk of jouissance, of intense enjoyment. And that's what you posit to have been lost in taking on language. And so it's that thing that's always behind language. Like you, 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 you're searching through language all the time. You're, you're searching through various aspects of society. You're trying to find this thing. Um, 
and yet you can't find it because it's not a thing that you actually can find. It's not a physical object. Um, and yet this is who you are. This is what you are, is you're the relation of your lack to the object that you're lacking. And so that's the barred subject, the negative subject, right? Um, and so that's the Lacanian subject. <clears throat> what happens, though, is we're missing this thing. We have this sense like, oh, I, I, I have desire and I come to uh, possess certain things, but nothing does it for me, right? There's always something unsatisfactory about the object of desire. Once you get it, it's not as great as you thought it was going to be because it didn't do to you what you were unconsciously hoping it would do, right? You're still lacking. And so what fundamental fantasy does is it creates a relationship to OJ Petit all. Like this is okay if like that's what fundamental fantasy does is it tells you what you have to be or what kind of scenario there has to be for you to regain this lost object. And so that brings us up to where I want to talk about the little diamond shape, right? Because the diamond shape is a, a condensation. It's four signs in one. On the one hand, you have the greater than sign, you have the lesser than sign, you have the disjunction sign, and you have the conjunction sign. And so these four signs oh, are the conjunction and the what? Wait, what are those other two ones? I know greater and lesser, but what's the? Is it is it like a little? Is it kind of like a little pyramid and then upside down pyramid? Is that kind of what we're? What is out there? Yeah, let me see because I, I have a note here. The uh, the disjunction sign is the little V. It's the bottom. Oh, yeah, because it's either or in logic. Is the, yeah. Yeah, okay. So conjunction is the top the top one. That's conjunction. And so, yes. And so what you have is there's within these four different signs, right? Okay, I want to I want to form a union with OJ Petit A. Or I want to disregard OJ Petit A, and somehow it's like letting it go, disregarding it, that you feel like you're going to get it. The greater than is, oh, I have to occupy a higher position in society in order to get the OJ Petit A, or, oh, I have to be very humble, and I have to live a certain kind of humble existence to get it, right? All of these, these four signs are different existential attitudes we take up that we think, if I'm this way, if I have this relation, this dynamic I'm going to get it and so those are various ways uh, that we think like oh I this is if I relate myself to it in this way I will get it genius and Fucking so, genius and so okay, but here, what did you say okay so but okay so you just explained how those are the four different shapes but what did you call the diamond again it's what called you... a lozenge l-o-z-e in G E. I don't mean the symbol. I mean, what did you what did you say? This you characterize this as something. The, the the conjunction of these four things is what? Okay. Well, well, it's a condensation, right? Because okay, it, condensation. Okay. You're you're taking four signs and making them into one. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. That's that's what I was looking for. So. Gotcha. Um, condensation, and so that's all going to be through metaphor. As metaphorical associations for subject. Yeah, 
Yeah, we can maybe we can touch about metaphor and metonymy. I don't I don't think it's those aren't the most important things for okay. what we're talking about here today. Okay, that's fine. Cool. Okay, so so here's what we have here, right? What the fundamental fantasy does is it tells us what we desire. And I, I to to you know, Lacan has this early formulation. This will give us a, 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 an excuse to answer the question from last time real fast. Be brief about it. So need, demand, desire. So Lacan formulates this dialectic where you go from need to desire. Well, the way this works is that – excuse me. Uh, let me find it here. Okay, so there's this form, famous sentence – from the Acree. It's in a, the paper called The Signification of the Phallus. <clears throat> and Lacan says, this is why desire is neither the appetite for satisfaction, need, nor the demand for love, demand, but the difference that results from the subtraction of the first, need, from the second, demand, the very phenomenon of their splitting. Okay, so Zizek has a, he, he talks about this in pretty clear terms in looking awry. So Zizek says, the Lacanian distinction between need, demand, and desire, i.e., the way an everyday object destined to satisfy some of our needs, undergoes a kind of transubstantiation as soon as it is caught in the dialectic of demand and ends up producing desire. When we demand an object from somebody, its use value, the fact that it serves to satisfy some of our needs, EO ipso becomes a form of expression of its exchange value. The object in question functions as an index of a network of inner subjective relations. I'm realizing this isn't as clear as I thought it was, but I'll break it down. He, he continues, if the other complies with our wish, he thereby bears witness to a certain attitude towards us. The final purpose of our demand for an object is thus not the satisfaction of a need attached to it, but confirmation of the other's attitude towards us. When, for example, the mother gives milk to her child, the milk becomes a token of her love. So, okay, here's what's going on. The baby has basic biological needs. It has to eat in order to stay alive. But what happens is once the child starts demanding food, at first it's through the cry, but once it has language, it can start to articulate the demand. I want this. Give mm. me this, right? What happens is that the demand enters the need, the, the biological impulse, into this whole other register. At first, it's merely about the use value. I just need, you know, in the case of hunger, I just need the sustenance of the food so I can live. But once right. it enters language and the kid starts demanding food, now it's demanding certain types of food. And the example I gave you not too long ago is, and, you know, uh, it's a cute little example. Like, you imagine a little kid. Little kid wants a snack, so hunger, right? But the kid says to its mom, hey, I want a popsicle. And so the mom goes to the freezer, gets a popsicle, takes it to the kid, and the kid's like, no, this is orange. I don't want orange. I want cherry. So the mom goes back to the freezer and gets a cherry one. But then the kid's like, no, I don't want this cherry one. I want the other cherry one, right? And so... What the kid's actually doing here is it's 
it, it, the mom is having to prove that she loves the kid through how much she's willing to put up, right? How how much of an inconvenience she's letting the kid be. Mm-hmm. And so the biological need isn't what's fundamentally at work here. It's the demand for love, right? But, and here's where we transition into the desire. The demand for love is still linked in some way to a proof of love, to an object, right? Uh, to some specific thing that would, even though it's not primary, it would still satisfy a basic need. But when Lacan says desire is what happens when need is subtracted from demand, then you're you're in this whole other register altogether where you want stuff, but it has nothing to do with your biological imperatives. It, it, it has nothing to do with that. It, it's, it's a whole other order unto itself. And... This is where desire arises for Lacan. Now, again, there's many different ways he talks about the emergence of desire. This is one of the earlier ones, um, but it gives us a sense that, yeah, desire is not tethered to biology or biological needs. It's two steps removed from that. Uh, and but, but Lacan was basically trying to show how desire emerges out of need. And so... We go back up to fundamental fantasy. Okay, so this whole thing about desire emerging in this way is interesting, and, and I wanted to touch on it because it is a theory of the emergence of desire. But I think the one that's more important is from Seminar 11, which, as we've talked about, it's arguably his most important seminar. And it's the whole process of what he calls separation. And this is much more relevant to fundamental fantasy, as we'll come to see. So what is separation? Well, up until seminar 17, or uh, seminar 11, I'm sorry, Lacan had talked about alienation, right? And we've already seen this. We didn't use the term, but in the imaginary, you are alienated. And there's a kind of fundamental ontological alienation for you to become an ego at all. It's not the kind of alienation Marx is talking about where, oh, we're alienated from the products of our labor or from our the very process of labor, right? It's not the forms of alienation that for Marx we need to undo, uh, we need to get out of, but we're, uh, this alienation is part of our ontology. And we're base alien- reality. Say what? Oh, uh, it's just base reality, right? Like, well, it, it's part of our sense of self, right? Our, our yeah. ego, right? It's, it, and again, it's not that despite Lacan's criticisms of the ego psychologist, he's not saying, oh, we have to make human beings not have egos, right? right. It's not, that's not what he's saying. It's it, He knows that the ego is a fundamental part of human reality. It's not going anywhere. It just can't be the focus. And right. there's a way that analysis has to get beyond it to do any real work that's effective. But you are alienated at the core of your identity precisely because your mere image, and not just that primary identification with your mere image, but all the things that you identify with, the bands you like, the books you like, uh, the, the movie stars that you wish you could be, like all of these various things that you identify with are not you. And so your identity, who you are at the ego level, 
is based on all these external things, right? But so therefore your your whole identity is based on alienation. Um, and yet it's not an alienation you can ever really get rid of. Um, you just have to recognize that alienation is core of is at the core of human reality. And so that's imaginary alienation. That's going on with the ego. But there's also symbolic alienation where and I think you know for us with Heideggerian backgrounds it helps to talk about Dosmon where once you're in language or once you're in the social order um, you're never fully you right you're you're you you always have to be some kind of generic self you have to take on this generic protocol that you know there's the the way of doing what one does in society you have to do what one does in order to be in society at all and so you're alienated in this other that you are not, but is also at the core of your existence. Like you can't get rid of Dosmon, you can't get rid of the big other. You wouldn't be you, right? You are your position in society. You are the signifiers that you identify with, the values, right? You are, and all of this is largely embodied. You're not even thinking about it at the egoic conscious level. You just live it, and so. There's this double alienation. One has to do with the ego and the imaginary. The other has to do with the big other and the symbolic order. But, and, and what's interesting, again, Lacan uses this term extimate, right? And it's a neologism that combines the word intimacy uh, uh, with uh, the word exterior or external with intimate. So what is most intimate to us is something external, something outside us. And this is part of the paradox of human subjectivity is you are the other you are these things that you are not and um the, the, like the core of subjectivity is inhabited by an alien alterity whether it be the imago or the signifier you know whether it be images of yourself or language or social positions um or customs or laws or rules right they're they're essential they're an essential core of who you are and yet you aren't reducible to them and they're not reducible to you so in that sense they're extimate i mean i always feel like in case you tied it into heidegger i always feel like lacan is basically g doing the next step you know like all of these other people tried to do the next step uh, you know sartre and merleau ponty and levinas all tried to be heidegger 2.0 but, you know, and they all kind of succeed in their own ways. And, you know, Foucault even in, in his own, everyone kind of like takes that project from being in time division one off in, in its own direction. But, but this, what the part I'm most interested in, this, this gets to the stuff I'm most interested in because all of the, the three main categories that make up Dasein, the kind of being that we are, that humanity is, or that any kind of being that lives in temporality and, and has projects and, 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 and a life with others, um, and any, any being in language, right, it has certain fundamental components that, 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 that you could say are the, the, the structural conditions for the, the sense of self uh, or of the world or others that arises. And, and for, for Heidegger, that's going to be understanding discourse and mood. And, you know, I kind of explained that in the big mood essay. Um, but, and I'll explain it in my next essay a bit more in depth, but right now, um, 
the, the main thing I'm trying to get at is that those three categories, all three of them are existentials or existential categories. Each one of them is unlike in modern philosophy. In modern philosophy, there's always like a fundamental, like you have like the, the base thing that everything else builds off of. These three things um, are, are – no one is prior to the others. All three of them are, are equally original. And so um, the, these categories, understanding – Discourse. Discourse is through language. Understanding is through knowledge and 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 through intellect and through you know all of these other things. And then you've got you got mood, fundamental attunement to the world, or your fundamental uh, disposition within the world. Um, all three of those are being with. All three of those are being with, right? So where modern philosophy you know gets off and Anglo-Saxon philosophy kind of remains a lot of the time is this kind of idea that like, well, I can't be sure of anything else. All I know is that I exist says Descartes, using language, which is a thing that is necessarily being with. It doesn't make sense. Language doesn't make any sense to think that it, it, you know, you're enmeshed in not just language, but also the, the possibility of understanding that language, the, the, the possibility of using that language, of, of internalizing the rules of language and the symbolic order and the laws and the prohibitions and the norms, and, and then, and then the, your fundamental attunement within those conditions your fundamental mood within those conditions, all of those things play off of each other to make us what we are. But then Lacan takes and goes like a, a layer deeper. So these are all still being with categories. That's kind of what the word estimate is perfect for getting at the, the, what, what, what Heidegger was using for being with, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about another way to, you know, I like to talk about it, right? If somebody thinks that they are truly who they are in and of themselves, to go back to you know the, the way we talk about the liberal concept of the ego, the libertarian concept of the ego, the capitalist, um, all you have to do is use the thought experiment of a feral child, right? right? A kid who never got language. It shows you you don't end up with a human subject. Of course, there's uh, you know a member of our species there, but there's not a human being in the sense that we use the term, mm-hmm. and. It's precisely because of the lack of language that the, this human brain did not get language, did not get the big other installed in it uh, at, at the point in its life where it needed it in development to become a human subject. And so that I mean, that kind of thought experiment helps to show how much you depend on becoming alienated in the big other to be a subject at all. And, you know, so alienation again is part of our our ontological being our essence right even though the whole point of lacan is that we are these lacking subjects right we're the subjects who lack our being because that's what obj petit awe is if i could get it i could get that thing i'm missing i would be whole and not again not at the imaginary level like at the level of the image but at just at the level of human subjectivity and that's precisely, you know, so it's, it's this high idea that we only are desiring subjects so long as we are alienated and incomplete. Mm. And so this, this, this brings us, right, we've talked about alienation, but in Seminar 11, Lacan introduces the concept of separation. And separation has to do with the child's relation to the mother's lack. Now, Lacanians will, they have this word mother, right? But when they write it, the, the, the M is in parentheses, and then the O in the word mother is capitalized. So it's the mother, 
Yeah, it, it's right. The big other, the, the the big other in the mother, in the the empirical, the primary caregiver. And by the way, side note, we did this last time. We're not going to do it again. This is a this is a primary caregiver. We're using this word this word loosely. So yeah, the mother yeah. is a function. It's not a biological sex or the, you know the biological mother. It's the the mother is the child's primary caregiver, and the father is whoever steps in and separates the child from the mother, and that could be a biological woman. Yeah. So again, these are these are social positions and not. Uh, you know, mythological figures or biological types. Right. So, um, so yeah, but separation also involves the production of objet petit a. So this is more relevant to where we're going with fundamental fantasy. And after this, we're going back to fundamental fantasy. So I'm going to use another quote from Sean Homer because I think this is really good. He says, as with the subject, the other is also lacking. So the baby starts to perceive the primary caregiver lacks something and that the baby isn't sufficient to satisfy that lack, to fill that void, right? There's something besides the baby that the mother primary caregiver desires. And Lacan will call this the imaginary phallus. And again, maybe we'll talk about when we talk about sexuation, if we get there tonight, we can talk about the phallus, but phallus does not mean penis. It's not, don't form, you know, an identification with those two terms. I, I think it would be better uh, to have a different term for what he's talking about. He's just referring to the lack in the mother. That you can tell the mother wants something, desires something besides the child. And it, you can tell, like, it's almost like intentionality in phenomenology. The, the baby can perceive the mother's intentionality is drifting other places, right? It's not staying focused on the child. And so the child's starting to like get some vague sense of, oh, what's the thing that mom wants that I don't, that I'm not, right? And so the, the baby perceives the lack in the other. So uh, Sean Homer continues. And, and I should say this lack in the other, this is what makes the other barred or lacking or incomplete, right? <clears throat> the other is also a subject of desire. So he goes, he goes on to say, there remains something essentially unfathomable in the desire of the other for the subject, the baby. What Lacan calls separation is the encounter with the lack in the other and the want to be more than merely lack. Uh, separation involves the coincidence or overlapping of two lacks. It's like, okay, I lack something and the mother lacks something. And what I lack and what she lacks, they don't coincide, right? And so this is where there's there's a separation between the mother-child unity, right? right. Um, so there's a lack in the subject and in the other. The interaction between these two lacks will determine the constitution of the subject. So exactly. We- and this is why the first few years of your life are the most formative years of your life. How you develop into the symbolic, how you integrate into how you are assimilated into that order in relation to like coping with these fundamental separations and breaks. Like that's going to be constitutive. It's going, which means it, it constructs, it builds that, that subjectivity. Right. So. Absolutely. I mean, that, you know, even though objet petit a, right. The, Lacan said it was his greatest concept. 
if, if Heidegger, if, think about different Heidegger or, or different philosophers, though. We think Deleuze is the philosopher of difference. Heidegger is the philosopher of being. Um, um, Sartre's the philosopher of freedom, right? I think it's fair to say Lacan, even though he wouldn't call himself a philosopher, let's call him a thinker. You know, Lacan's a thinker of lack because the phallus is a lack and the desire of the other involves a lack and objet petit a is a lack and signifiers themselves in isolation from other signifiers have no signifieds. They have a lack. And so he's finding lack everywhere. And the, the you know, the various lacks we encounter in, in childhood, the, the ones we, we pursue, the ones we identify with, all of this uh, forms our particular subjectivity. And so I, I think it's it's best to think of him as this thinker of lack. Um, but Sean Homer goes on, he says, separation therefore takes place at precisely the point that the subject can formulate the question, what am I in the other's desire, right? This is where you're like, you break away and the other's desire has a kind of monstrous impenetrant, uh, impenetrability about it, where you can't figure out what the other wants from you even if the other tells you what they want, it doesn't necessarily, it's not satisfying. Right, because if your parents tell you they want you to be a good kid at school and not hit the bully, they actually might secretly yeah. wish that you hit the bully, that kind of thing. I have used that example for it. I love that example. because I got that example is, from you, yeah. Yeah, the kid, the kid goes home, right? The kid's... Uh, Hey, you know, we don't believe in violence in this family. It's never right to punch. It's never right to hurt another person. And the kid is being bullied at school. And so the kid takes the nonviolent approach as the as the parents have dictated, right? He thinks he's going to satisfy their desire by not hitting back. And he goes home, he tells the parents about the bullying and what happened, and they go, "Oh, that's very good. We're very proud of you that you didn't hit back." And yet he can detect a gap a separation like i hear what you're saying <laughs> out of me but i can tell that you're disappointed so what mm -hmm. do you really want from me right and so there's a, uh, the, you, it also works in, in an inverted way right so say the kid says oh screw it i am gonna punch back right and so the kid goes home and he uh, the kid's afraid he's gonna be punished because he didn't obey the law of the parents right the demand of the parents and yet once he tells them what happened they they start saying, well, you know, we really do believe in nonviolence, and it, it's wrong to solve your problems with violence. But we understand why you did what you did. And but despite what they're saying, he detects a certain joy in them that he beat up the bully. And so this is the split, right? Like, no matter what somebody tells you, what they want from you, you can't be sure of that because they themselves have an unconscious. Right. Like I can't figure myself out let alone how can I possibly figure out somebody else's desire and because we're all split subjects and so this creates uh, anxiety right um, yeah somebody just mentioned anxiety uh, legal and free yeah we're gonna get into anxiety in a minute um, this is one of the causes of anxiety for Lacan is this uh, unfathomable uh, impenetrable enigma of the other's desire you're telling me you want this from me, but I can tell you want something else. But you can also get a sense like, but I don't think you even know what you want from me, right? And uh, yet for a child, think about how much, 
you're helpless. You can't take care of yourself as a human baby. Your whole life depends on the other desiring you, wanting to be there to take care of you, right? So it's like your whole biological reality necessitates being positioned properly in relation to the other's desire. And so it's this like horrifying anxiety that you feel like, oh, if I don't satisfy the other's desire, if I don't keep their intentionality fixated on me, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be okay. And so when people tell you, oh, I don't care what others think of me, it's bullshit. I mean, this goes to the very core of who we are is we're always caught up with the other's desire. This is why Lacan says desire is the desire of the other. On the one hand, you desire to be desired by the other, but you also end up desiring what the other desires because you believe that's what's going to make them desire you, right? And so this this whole thing, like we care about what the other desires or what the other thinks to the core of our being. We never get rid of that. And anybody who says otherwise is like in a kind of bad faith or inauthenticity, right? It's not authentic to say, oh, I don't care what the other thinks. Yes, of course, there's times that there's certain people you don't really care what they think, but you always care about what some other thinks, right? It goes to the core of your being. Um, and so just to finish this quote up, right? So uh, he said, what am I in the other's desire? And can thus differentiate itself from the desire of the other, right? In pondering what the other desires, not knowing what the other desires, you can't actually identify with it and make it your own desire. So your desire is not identified with the other's desire. There's a split. And that's how your desire comes into being. Because you don't know what the other desire, you can't desire what the other desires because you don't know what it is. And so this whole like enigmatic, impenetrable aspect of the other uh, is, you know, part of where your desire originates. And so he concludes, while the desire of the other always exceeds or escapes the subject, there, never, there nevertheless remains something that the subject can recover and thus sustain him or herself in being, as a being of desire or a desiring subject. That remainder is the objet petita, the object cause of desire. And again, his point is, there's desire is desiring something and every object of desire that it thinks is going to satisfy itself, it doesn't. And so there's this uh, elusive missing object that desire is always chasing um, and it never can get its hands on it. But nevertheless, this is what orients desire uh, at the most basic level is this objet petit off. And that's what causes you to desire. What like think about cause of the object cause of desire, the object that causes you to desire. All of us, can think about a hundred different objects of our desire. I want a new TV. I want this book. I want that. I want a new car, right? But the question is, what causes us to desire those, those particular objects of desire, right? And so for Lacan, he doesn't think it's very interesting, the specific objects we desire on whatever day. What is interesting is that cause of desire, right? Those traits or those characteristics that we have libidinally invested, right, unconsciously, we're not aware of this, that that we link to whatever is missing in our lives, that cause us. This is why people tend to have, they repeat relationship patterns. They, uh, people often tend to date the same person over and over again. Uh, there's certain traits, that, uh, certain characteristics that we link we, through our whole libidinal history, like our whole life is involved in this. But 
we come to associate certain features, certain traits with the missing object, objet petit a, and it's like, oh, well, you know, when we think we see something, you know, the unconscious registers it, and it's like, oh, there's the missing object, right? But you get it, and it's not because the missing object is there's no real original missing object. It's a virtual uh, effect of having to take on prohibition and language and custom. And so there is no real missing lost object to regain. Um, it's just a virtual effect of language. And so the point is, uh, okay, and so just we're almost back to fundamental fantasy. So I'll just say that uh, separation also refers to the split subject, right? So the split subject, barred F in relation to uh, the little a, which is what we're working on with fantasy. However, the subject is this very split, this object relation, right? That's the key thing is when you see the barred S and the A, you have to go, that is me. Not just the barred S, but the missing A. I am my pursuit of this missing part of myself, right? <clears throat> to over, uh, okay, yeah, and so here's the thing though. If we were to overcome this loss, if we were to actually regain the lost object, which again is impossible, but just to make the point, it would destroy us. We would cease to be desiring human beings. We we would have no lack, and we would revert back to some kind of pre-linguistic infant, right? It mm -hmm. would destroy our very social reality and a sense of self. So the thing that you're pursuing your whole life, if you actually could get it, which you can't, it would be, it would be utter existential destruction. And so that's kind of the, the tragic aspect of the Lacanian subject, right? But uh, okay, so now we are finally ready. Oh, I want to I want to do a couple things before you do it though. Okay. So welcome everybody who's just joined recently. We have a lot more people in the chat than we did when this began. Um, I'm guessing some of you are doing that epic thing where you go back to the beginning and and you're and you're speeding through to catch up to this point, like River Ransom did. So uh, if you're doing that, once you get to this point, hi, welcome, and uh, to the people who are with us at this point. Welcome. So uh, I'm Theory Plebe, and we are joined by the Dangerous Maybe. Uh, that's Michael Downs, the person who's been talking this whole time. He has a chan uh, a blog on Medium called The Dangerous Maybe, and lots of fantastic, very accessible. Obviously, if you're if you've been paying attention, if you have any background in philosophy or in in Lacan, if for that matter, uh, or in continental philosophy at all, then you then you know that he's talking about these things in a way that most people aren't able to. It's I I I I, I it, it's so important to me. I think that it's the most important blog on the on the website on on, on the internet. Okay, on the internet on the website on the internet. It's the most important blog on the internet for if you're really into theory. I'll just say that if, if for theory, for getting into theory, for for studying these kinds of thinkers, you gotta you gotta get you gotta get it get it in your veins. And someone please share the link to uh, the Dangerous Maybe's blog in the chat if you can. I appreciate it. Also, we have 15 likes on this video. Uh, thank you. Uh, this video has shown up to some people who've never seen this channel before. Uh, as uh, who was it? One person, Christian, in the chat said that this was uh, recommended to. Was it? No, this was John though. John was like, I don't know you theory plea, but thanks for popping up in my sidebar. Subbed. Thank the algorithm gods. Praise be. I mean, usually they neglect this channel, but sometimes I guess like they'll actually show it to you. And so if you've ever like watched 
any Lacan videos online before, then sure, the, this is probably going to get recommended to you because there's not a lot of live videos on the topic. The, the No, though, in answer to Christian's question, this is not a Lacan-specific channel, though for me and my approach to trying to understand the social and political um Lacan's kind of there in the background. I just am never, I mean, I don't know, I don't know shit about Lacan and I, I can't really talk about Lacan, even though Lacan, like what, what little I do know about Lacan is informing some of the, some of the basic things I, I, it does apply to some of the stuff that I do, but I'm usually using, I'm just kind of working with Marx, Heidegger, Levinas, um, and, and then some more general philosophy stuff. So, uh, I do have an introduction to philosophy, of course. This is, so I'm doing like a full explanation of a few things really quick before we transition. Um, and, I, and I have a couple of questions for you, uh, Michael, that will follow up on a couple of things that you said. But really quick, I also have like this confounding schedule up here. Um, it's one of those things where you try to get more and more specific to make it easier for certain people, but then it makes it harder for other people. That's where we're at. Because, I mean, there's a lot going on here. But basically, I've got uh, three recurring events up on the whiteboard. One is a Casual Friday uh, that then raids Damon Garcia. It's a Twitch stream. Um, one is a statistics class that I'm doing with Dogs and Radicals. Um, he's tutoring me in statistics, and it's all kind of in a political context. And then this is the one that we're, I'm doing with the Dangerous Maybe. It's on Lacan. Um, the, 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 the intro to philosophy thing will sometimes be in this time slot right here. Um, and uh, so far, I've only done the, the very beginning, the, the first part of the intro to philosophy. I just this week I canceled both of these events, and and that's because my sleep schedule has been all fucked up. And so I know that the schedule exists up here, and that I'm showing it. It's something that you can have expectations about, but don't get too attached to those expectations because I am not holding myself to very high standards right now because holding myself to overly rigid standards of what I should be doing at what time during quarantine has been the source of a lot of my frustration. And so learning to just let go of that and sleep when I'm tired is seemingly better. But what that is also doing to me is making it so that I'm going to sleep at 11 p.m., uh, 9 a.m. Like it's just all over the place. And I know other people are reporting similar things. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, it's fucking me up. But uh, I think that just getting over it and letting go of my expectation to really get into a rigid routine is helping. So for now, this is the, pro the provisional schedule. No promises. Don't hold me to that. Um, it's kind of like a day-by-day -day thing at this point. Um, and if you really want to know what the fuck is going on, just subscribe um, to the website. Um, it's go the website, theoryplebe.com, is going to replace uh, it's going to replace everything else that I'm using, basically. Like, I'll still have videos that are on uh, YouTube and Twitch. I'll still stream from both platforms sometimes. Uh, but I'm getting rid of affiliate status on Twitch. I'm demonetizing all my videos on YouTube. And I'm basing everything out of my personal website. And over the course of the next two months, I'll be switching from Patreon to my personal website so that... Jeff Bezos and the Patreon people alike, what, regardless of which platforms I'm using, they won't ha they won't be taking as large of a cut. But mainly, more 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 importantly, I want to be able to integrate the tiers, the rewards uh, for the subscription levels into areas of the website, so that different subscription tiers are going to unlock certain things on the website. Now, right now, there's not a lot. There's really nothing there. It's all under construction. Um, but I've just been too busy to get it f complete. And, the, and, and my, my programmer 
she's too busy too. Um, so that's life. But anyway, um, normally we would say, you know, join the live chat from theoryplebe.com forward slash life. Um, we're not doing that today. We will probably be doing that next time though. Okay. Now I want to bring this all back around before you switch over and really quick, you were bringing this all back around and you're go, you're about to say, um, you're about you were about to link this up to the to the the first four of the seven veils of fantasy. Is that right? Yeah. So here's okay. the thing. Before we do that, hold on. I'm gonna uh, yeah. run a drink real fast. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll engage with chat a little bit more, and then I'm and going, then. But when you get back, I'm gonna tie. The, I want. I'm gonna before you do those four things. I want to tie it into the ideal ego, ego ideal. So we'll come back to that in a second. Okay, I'll be back in like thirty seconds. Cool. How's it going, chat? Thank you, River Ransom, for sharing the, the blog. I've seen a lot of, uh, well, a lot. I mean, I've seen a few few people being like, oh my God, so much is clicking. This makes so much sense. Oh my gosh, thanks. So I can, every time I hear Michael talk about these kinds of things, that's how I feel. And, you know, we've been talking for a few years now, you know, we have long conversations on the phone. Um, you know, he doesn't toot his own horn much, but he, he reads, he reads like no one else I've ever met. And he has been since he was like 21. Um, so basically when he turned 21, he realized he's like, I feel stupid. So he went to a Barnes and Noble and he's like, well, smart people read philosophy. So like, that's kind of just where he started. Um, and he's been reading like six hours a day for over a decade and he's been reading philosophy for almost two decades and he didn't go to college for more than like a semester um he he can't he's he's uh he he it's so hard like he he, he he'll tell you himself he's just like i can't do i can't do it like fuck college um and i i identify with that strongly that sentiment i'm i roughed it i made it through college because I had had no formal education. I had no high school experience. I had no formal education before I was like 23. So when I went to college, it was like philosophy. I'd never heard of philosophy. I'd I'd been, if you watch that show, Midnight, uh, it's on Netflix right now and it's called uh, Midnight Gospel, The Midnight Gospel. The the Midnight Gospel is kind of like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, Adventure Time but more psychedelic in its imagery and conversations. And the conversations are all kind of like spirits, spirit science-y, a little bit philosophical, a little bit of world religions, a little bit of all this other stuff. Kind of like the, it, it kind of reminds me of the, the, that, that movie Waking Life. It's like, that's, it's the mode of thought that's like open to pure speculation and, and conversation about pure speculation that I definitely spent several years of my life in. Um, but my problem with, the mode of pure speculation that comes with experimenting with psychedelics or, or hanging out with people who are, uh, especially it's not necessary to that, but you know, it can be, um, for, for me, part of the problem is, is that I need to be able to ground out ideas in, in things and be able to like make sharp contrasts. And I need to be able to do that for the sake of, uh, you know, or basic orientation, basic stability, basic, like I, 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 Long story short, philosophy was a, a lifesaver for me because it gave me the tools 
for thinking through a lot of the stuff I'd been doing previously. And if you want to know what I've been doing previously, you just watch the Midnight Gospel. It's like that's all my conversations were like that for like a few years. And then when I went to college, and this is after getting burnt out on the other mode, right? Um, philosophy kind of steps in and, and supplies you with um, a lot of the tools you didn't realize you were lacking, or at least that, that I was lacking. And so um, I always find that this stuff is, is you, you can't even pay attention for more than three minutes without your mind just shooting off in all these directions and making all these connections and it's so exciting and you're bringing all this stuff back to it. Uh, what I recommend for doing that, if you get really distracted because you're getting inspired while you're paying attention to or trying to pay attention to someone like Michael talk about these ideas, is like jot little notes down to yourself to think about those ideas more later and then trust yourself that you can come back to it, right? Like, um, the, it, it, think about it. If you got that much inspiration and that many ideas connecting just by paying attention for a short period of time, imagine what could happen from paying attention for a long period of time. And then some motherfucker on YouTube is going to be like, oh, that's ableist to say that you should pay attention for things because I have ADHD. I do too. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. That's a stupid excuse. That's so fucking stupid. Everyone is highly distracted online and I have ADHD. So no, um, attention, attention disorders suck and, uh, and, and, and focusing online sucks for all of us and it sucks way worse for other people for whom it's a real disorder. But all of us benefit from, from being able to focus. And, uh, and so basically my point is, is like jot notes and then revisit, revisit, repeat, don't stop. And now it sounds like you're back, Michael. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so I think we're ready to. I, th I think this will be some of the, the fun stuff. Hey, we're um, getting into the fun stuff, folks. Because I was bored as shit up until now. So, no, <laughs> so you know, here's what's fun about it. This is the stuff that's relevant at the social political level, the, the ideological level, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do. Two, you know, two birds, one stone. I'm going to talk about what fundamental fantasy is and what it does at the individual level. And then I'm going to talk about how Zizek has taken these Lacanian insights and applied them to different ideologies. And the one in particular we're going to talk about is Nazism. Nazism. Okay. Now, before we jump down that, I mean, because I'd already said that I was going to do it. Are you, are you prepared or should we just kind of bracket this off for later? But I, the the ideal ego versus ego ideal because it seems like everything you were talking about related to that, and we talked a lot about that last time. Okay, I mean, just briefly, you have three key aspects to your ego, <clears throat> and um, two of them are situated primarily in the imaginary, but one of them has to do with the symbolic, and so of course we all just have a basic sense of self, right? That's our ego, right? I, I'm aware of myself. I'm aware that I'm talking right now. That's, that's the ego. But the ego also has an ideal ego. And the ideal ego is the idealized image of yourself you have in your head. We all have an image or images of how we would like to be, the kind of person we, 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 we aspire to be. And that, that, that kind of... Um, idealized sense of self is your ideal ego but we're all aware that we do that we're, we we oftentimes sit around like 
in narcissistic enjoyment, thinking about how we would like to be, right? And we can picture our ideal ego in our heads. But what Lacan, what his insight is, is that there's something else that's determining the ideal ego. So think about like, okay, I have a sense of self that I want to be. I have an idealized image of myself, but I can't actually realize it. And it's kind of torturing me. Well, let me break apart my ideal ego and establish a different ideal ego. And then I'll be freed from all the tension and guilt and negative feelings that my current ideal ego forces me to have. Lacan's point is, yeah, there is this ideal ego, this idealized image of yourself, but the, 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 the counterpart to it is your ego ideal. And the ego ideal is the gaze for whom you want to be your idealized ego. And so here's the thing. If you change the content of your idealized ego, right? Oh, I, I don't, I, I imagine myself being like this, but let me switch. And now I picture myself being like this, your ego ideal can remain the same. So when we talk about the, the other for whom you want to be this, imagine like some kind of pure gaze that has a certain set of values that, you know, it, it privileges certain things over other things. And it's like, okay, if I can be this, then I will satisfy the other, right? It's almost this desire of the other, but in the, this other register where you're dealing with these images of yourself. But the point is your idealized ego is not something that you just spontaneously produce, right? It's, it's not something that you get credit for what it is excuse me, is an answer to the ego ideal, the set of values, like the, the gaze that's judging you. Like, do you live up to the set of standards I have? And the point is in, in early childhood, I mean, even in the mirror stage, the parents are holding the baby in front of the mirror and the baby gets a sense like, oh, my idealized self is this, this whole being, right? I'm this fragmented little this little person that can't control itself, but, oh, there's the ideal image in the mirror. But the point is, it's your parents holding you up, and there's certain aspects of yourself that, you know, they start saying things about you. Oh, you're a big boy, or, you know, they, they start applauding certain behavior, uh, certain mannerisms, like little things about yourself, and you start to build your ideal ego out of the values that, the ego ideal, the parent's gaze bestows on you. And so the real revolutionary thing when it comes to your identity would be not so much attacking your idealized ego, but attacking the ego ideal that you're constantly trying to satisfy. And this is part of what analysis will do. I mean, at least for certain people, some of their problem is that they feel like there's these standards that no matter what they accomplish, no matter who they become, they can't satisfy these standards. And these standards are very, very oppressive in certain cases. And I mean, think about somebody who struggles with, you know, heteronormative ego ideal, right? Growing up with parents who are very much, you know, tapped into heteronormativity, um, that can be completely oppressive, right? And so the, the key wouldn't be in undermining the ideal ego. It would be in undermining the ego ideal in that case. But the problem is when we, when we have these moments where we have daydreams or whatever of our 
idealized selves, we never notice the other. It's like off stage, right? You don't notice for whom you want to be this ideal ego. And so part of analysis would be to undermine, you know, an oppressive ego ideal, which is to say, you know, certain standards that these standards are arbitrary, but they've become the law in my life, right? That's not to say, though, however, that the ego ideal is just intrinsically a bad thing. Sometimes the ego ideal uh, is a great thing, right? It's not to it's not saying ego ideal is bad. Uh, in fact, we could say that in our current society, right, where the emphasis is, you know, there's this other thing called the superego, and it's, I know, superego. You think it's part of the ego, but it's not really... It's not really part of your ego, so to speak. It's, I mean, it's part of your, 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 uh, your, it's like a moral agency, but it's not the superego that everybody thinks of. People think of the superego as society has all these standards. It's basically like they think of the superego as the ego ideal. Like, oh, there's these lofty standards and you can't live up to them. And I make you feel guilty for not living in accordance with uh, self-discipline and self-denial and all these proper virtues, right? In reality, the superego for Lacan and Zizek, the superegos is a law unto itself. It's what tells you enjoy, 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 right? Do not compromise your desire. Uh, live to your heart's content, right? And then because we can't actually enjoy uh, as much as it demands us to enjoy, we feel guilty for not enjoying enough. The ego ideal might make us feel guilty for having enjoyed, but right. the super ego makes us feel guilty for not enjoying enough. Right, which is and, which is why you, it's like people are more miserable because they're not happy than just because they're not happy. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 you know, oh, how are you? You 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 dread that question because then you ha- oh well I'm great you know or oh uh, you know it's like and then you, if you if you if you if you are to like go into detail people are like oh well what's wrong and body is well nothing's wrong I'm just not like I'm not irrationally exuberant today like I'm not, I didn't wake up thinking everything was fucking rainbows and I'm dancing through the meadow of life like I'm just like it's just a day it's just a fucking day but stop trying to prod because people are going to start prodding it's like no it's it's just literally just a day but it's like but no if if you are if 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 that's a problem for you it can make you even more miserable it's like oh i'm not i'm not enjoying oh no i'm not a great capitalist subject today exactly and consumerism puts all the emphasis on this super ego imperative to enjoy so i mean this is what why i like lacan so much he gives us so many of these distinctions that you start to be able to say well what's the problem in this particular case right so for us as consumer subjects we're our whole lives are based on this weird ethic of enjoyment that we have a duty to enjoy ourselves at all times at all places right and so it's almost as if, and Zizek talks about this, especially in his book, The Ticklish Subject, that part of the reason why we're so unhappy is because we don't have a big enough ego ideal. Like, ego ideal would have to do with these standards that put uh, prohibitions and limits on your enjoyment. And so this is part of, the, again, the tragedy where all we are doing in our lives are seeking uh, is seeking jouissance, enjoyment. Yet the second we get it or we have some amount of it, 
it's unsatisfying and we think there's some other enjoyment out there that's better, it's the grass is greener thing. But <clears throat> just living for immediate gratification, in a sense, it makes enjoyment, for lack of, like, I, I guess it's like, compare it to Coke, right? Coke goes flat, right? No, Nobody wants to drink flat Coke. Well, when you don't oh, that have... Coke. <laughs> Yeah, like when you when you don't have any prohibition in your life, nothing's eroticized. That's one of the the fundamental insights of psychoanalysis is that prohibition eroticizes. So if there is no prohibition and you're free to just enjoy, you don't really enjoy anything because nothing carries that strong sexual charge of being prohibited. No kinks. At, at the same time, certain certain prohibitions ruin a person's life. And make it where they can't, you know, whether, you know, prohibitions against homosexuality. That's a completely oppressive prohibition that ruins your life. And so the question is, what is the dynamic between the ego ideal and the superego? And sometimes the superego is the problem. But other times, if, if it's to go back to like the heteronormative thing, right? If the ego ideal is homophobic, then the superego is a kind of, you know, it's a freedom fighter because it's saying, Fuck your norms. I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to live my life in a way that I find enjoyable. And then in that case, the superego has this revolutionary push to it because it's going to say, I'm not conforming to your bullshit arbitrary norms. Uh, but, but again, it's a matter of going case by case. Like, is the ego ideal the problem or is it the superego? And the point is, for Lacan, there's really, you're never going to balance this. That's part of the tragedy of being human. Like, Without prohibition, we don't enjoy, but too much prohibition obviously, you know, ruins your life. And yeah, I mean, you kind of want to do the Aristotelian thing, which is, oh, there's the doctrine of the mean, right? There has to be a, a, a middle ground, right, that you can arrive at. But the whole tr point of jouissance or enjoyment, Lacan talks about how jouissance starts with a tickle and turns into a blaze uh, he say it like it goes from zero to sixty in no time. Like once once you tap into enjoyment, then it can take over your life and explode. It like turns your your reality into a fire. And so there really is no way of having a real balance because jouissance. He associates jouissance or enjoyment with super ego and with death drive. And the point is, the second they get they they take control. Their very structure is there to go as push it to the limit, go as much as they can. They are they're totally against the pleasure principle, which the pleasure principle here is, you know, having homeostasis in the body, being calm, right? Not having uh, too much excitation in the body. It's ba basically the body free of excitation. So on the one hand, with the pleasure principle, you're constantly seeking calm and homeostasis, but this other aspect of you, death drive, super ego, they're constantly trying to have as much excitation as possible, which is jouissance. So there's this built-in tension in us between pleasure and jouissance. And so we're caught in the middle of this ongoing battle. Um, Christian says, sorry if interrupting, sorry for interrupting again. Maybe someone can answer later. I'm studying philosophy and started to see the problems with capitalism. On the other side, I also have my concerns with mainstream left. There's a lot of jouissance. Are, are here, are, are here like-minded people, are, are there like-minded people here? And if, 
and if is there a way to get to know you guys oh well christian um i don't so i don't really like say that my discord is a community or that my patreon or any of the it's really not i don't i i'm not trying to be a community leader um this is more like a prolonged class that sometimes has office hours and hangouts and you're you're welcome to get to know anybody who also attends to whatever you know if you want to strike up conversations with other people then like that's obviously encouraged and so one way to definitely connect with other people is on discord um on uh, on the discord link that we shared up above somewhere someone someone could maybe reshare that um there's going you know but but uh, there's not like a lively ongoing uh, conversation in the general chat. And part of the reason is, you know, a lot of us are readers. And so we're trying to not be on Discord all day, every day. And so like the, I think that that's, you know, it's like if you're bored and just trying to hang out, like the Discord isn't always the best place to do that. But um, over time, I've gotten a feel for some of the people who come to these things and they're awesome. And uh, sometimes we do general chat, general voice chats after these lectures um, so like, you know, streaming afterwards, uh, you know, so it's like you do, a le- I'll do a lecture and then afterwards play a game and bring people on th- for the voice chat for a Q and a, so there is some stuff like that. Um, but as far as like issues with the mainstream left, I've got huge issues with the mainstream left. And I think that a lot of this stuff gets at some of those issues with the mainstream left and it gets at why Zizek has issues with it or why the mainstream left has issues with Zizek as well. It cuts both ways. So, um, there's... There's, there is a sense in which all of these post-structuralist thinkers, whether it's Lacan or Foucault or whoever, is responding to various things that they saw and experienced uh, in May 1968. Um, and, and so there's, 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 especially in the United States, there is like this huge emphasis on just like just validating the, the ego and making that a political project, you know, um, and and not understanding uh, subjectivity, which is more important and enmeshed in structural conditions. And it's a lot easier to think uh, in an in intuitive sense about things like ego and validation than it is to think about subjectivity and structures. And structural thinking is something that has to be developed and you can't just do it on your own. It requires reading things like Capital, Volume 1, you know, just as one example, but anyway, so that's, that's my kind of side thing. Um, just to touch on that, but okay. So I feel like what you've done so far, Michael, is you've adequately explained, uh, how the ego ideal and the ideal ego, uh, as this division between, um, the imaginary and the, and the, and the symbolic, uh, function here. And basically when you were saying super, super ego, just to clarify, you, you basically just were using that as, as castration, as prohibition, right? You, that, that it's the same thing. You, no, the, the, the big no. others. No, the ego would be more of, uh, no, I said that. I know I said super ego. I said, Oh wait, super ego would be the imperative to enjoy, which okay. is the opposite of castration, right? It's like get as much enjoyment as you can. The ego ideal would be more of the prohibition. Right. But but again, it's like we can't think of prohibition just as negative. Sometimes it's oppressive. Other times it's our enjoyment that's oppressive. Right. That's part of what analysis is about is sometimes a person's problem is that they have too much jouissance in their life. And it's like figuring out how, like how to evacuate jouissance out of your life. And 
so yeah the super ego okay it is it is part of the symbolic right because it's functioning as this weird kind of moral agency but i think the super ego if we were to situate it on the baromian knot it would be in the intersection between the symbolic and the real because it's ultimately geared towards the real go for that enjoyment that's outside of law prohibition language go for it and uh and for drive, right? Because drive's also situated in the real. So um, it, it's it's a moral agency, therefore symbolic, but it's it's imploring you to go for the real, jouissance, drive, satisfaction, etc. So okay, that's that's really helpful. I'm glad glad you clarified that. And then the last part I would touch on is just that I, I was I was using color codes here on the on the whiteboard for folks. Um, I circled. Ego and ego uh, ideal ego in green, um, and uh, ego ideal in red for symbolic, and then went back to separation where we had separation happening at the imaginary and symbolic levels. Just this stuff ties in directly, right? That there, yeah. So and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So anyway, that's 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 my final on that. Okay, so let's actually get to the core of what I wanted to get to tonight. All right, so we're, let's talk about fundamental fantasy. So here's how it works. Each and every one of us has a fundamental fantasy that's operative in our lives, and yet it, it only works insofar as it remains unconscious. But the point is, this fundamental fantasy can also become highly oppressive, right? Because it's, it's, this, it's, it's, it's this dynamic that we're constantly trying to actualize and live out and it, it like governs our whole life and so here's how it works though they're all together okay in in plague of fantasies gzx says there's seven veils of fantasy which we could say we could also say just seven features or seven structures of fantasy and the reason they're veils is fantasy covers over something right it masks something but uh in another essay he he provides seven veils of fantasy but they're not the same so there you could say there's nine in total if i ever got a chance to talk to him this would be one of the things i ask him about because in the early essay he lists seven and then another one in in the later book he uh he has seven again but he's switched two of them out he's got two new ones anyway that's irrelevant there's four main ones, and the four these are the four I want to talk about tonight. So here's what a fundamental fantasy does. All right, it is one. Uh, it's a transcendental schematism, and that I know that sounds like a bunch of jargon. And uh, Zizek is using Kant's language from the Critique of Pure Reason. Now, for Kant, here's what a transcendental schematism is. For a long time, philosophers have always talked about how concepts map onto physical objects, right? So out in the world, there's trees, right? And in our mind, we have this universal concept of treeness, right? Um, Plato would call this the form, right? The idea of tree. Um, and so we have some universal concept of what it is for something to be a tree. The question becomes, how does the mind apply a concept to a physical object? And because for Kant, universals or concepts are, they're like a set of predicates, right? And predicates don't, you know, or, or he also calls them rules, but it's like this, this, the, the, this list of predicates, right? It's uh, signifiers. Well, they don't resemble 
the thing that they represent, right? So the question is, how do concepts get applied to physical objects? Because they seem totally different. And Kant says there's a go-between, there's a third thing, which is a transcendental schematism. And for him, the imagination has this, this fundamental function of it's what takes a concept and applies it to a physical object. And it does it through a little, it's, think of it as like a stick drawing, right? It's a little basic image of the tree. And so for him, it's like there's the list of uh, predicates, right? There's how we linguistically define tree that make up the concept. Then there's a little sketch drawing, an image of tree. And then it's through that mediating imaginary image that it can take the predicates and apply them to uh, objects of experience, to empirical trees. Mm. And so it's a, it's a go-between. And this is how Kant formalizes the application of a concept to a referent, to an object. So the reason Zizek says that fantasy involves a transcendental schematism is, hey, I, it's the idea, I have desire, right? But how the hell does desire get applied to objects of desire? Like, what is the go-between? What makes me desire certain things, right? And this is similar to objet petit a, right? The cause of desire. Well, what fantasy does is it lays out a scheme that informs me of what will give, which, what will give me jouissance, right? What, what will uh, allow me to gain that lost object. And in doing that, that's what constitutes the particular desires I have. So the, the first feature of fundamental fantasy is it tells me, it trains my desire to des desire what it desires. That's what, where desire gets what it desires from. Like, oh, that, if, if you know, this, this image now that fantasy has con uh, constructed, it tells me what will satisfy desire. So that's where the particularity of my desire comes from. Because we all, yeah, there's uh, obviously there's certain things we all have in common that we desire, but in a more idiosyncratic level, we have this particular, it's like the fingerprint of who we are is the, the, the very particularity of our desire. And that's getting informed from the fundamental fantasy. And so it's through this image, right? That desire, which for lack of a better term is like this mental thing, this mental content, like the concept for Kant gets applied to actual physical objects. So it's serving the same function uh, for Zizek as it did for Kant. It's the go-between. It's what applies desire to specific objects. So that's the first feature, right? The first feature is the transcendental schematism, and that tells desire what it desires. It constitutes desire. Number two is inner subjectivity. And what this means is, we talked about it earlier, right? You're, you're never sure about what the other desires from you, and that provokes anxiety. Um, you know, this is Lacan's theory of anxiety, is that the desire of the other, um, it, you can never master it, you can never be sure about it. And so this other aspect of <clears throat> fundamental fantasy is it answers this question of the other's desire. Now, Lacan uses this. Italian... Oh, wait, are we still on the first one on the transcendental no, schematism? We're the... No, we're on the second one. The second one is intersubjectivity. Okay. 
and look, we're using this term. There's a whole thing about how Lacan stopped using the term intersubjectivity in his work, and it's not relevant to this point because it doesn't matter. The fact is, it even though he stops using the term um, for particular reasons uh, we won't go into, um, the idea is basically still the same. So the second feature of fantasy is intersubjectivity, right? And <clears throat> What what this does is fantasy is an answer to the question of the other's desire. Fantasy tells me what the other actually wants from me, right? And in doing that, it makes anxiety go away, at least momentarily, right? Like it it gives me a sense of bearing, right? Like in, in relation to the other. And Lacan uses this Italian um, question, cavoy, and cavoy essentially means what. You're, you know, what do you want from me? Or you're telling me you want this from me, but what do you really want from me? And it conveys this anxiety-provoking dimension of the other's desire. And so, this is another thing that fantasy does. It, it, it you know, it covers over the, you know, the the lack in the other that creates my anxiety. It fills in that lack that I can't master. It tells me what the other wants, and in doing so, it relieves me of anxiety. Okay, so that's number two. Why, why, why is that separate from number? Okay, it seems like Chevoy was also just in the first one. You know, what will what will give me jouissance? You know, you're you're having your desire trained. You're, are we just elaborating on that by being like, well, let's well like that? This. Let's put it like this: the first one has to do with my desire, and the second one has to do with the other's desire. Oh, okay. And yes, they are intertwined, but he's separating them out. You know, to to deal with the different facets here. Well, that, sounds, that seems a lot like the difference between ideal ego and ego ideal, right? Because the ego ideal would be the other's desire versus, you know, you, you know you're, what, what you're trying to... You're right. Be, there, is a, there is a parallel here, here between them, but we don't want to identify them because ultimately both of these are occurring in the real, which is to say it's not that... Oh. It's not that you make any... Like, this isn't occurring to consciousness, like, none of us know what our fundamental fantasy is. Like, it's only going through analysis that any of us could – I mean, there's traces of it maybe where you can go, yeah, I can tell that I have this pattern that I'm repeating. What is it in this pattern that keeps me going back to it, right? There's a sense that we can get a kind of awareness of it, but to really get a sharp image of what the fundamental fantasy is would require analysis. Um, and so – um, it, it's not something that we're aware of at the egoic level, and it's not so much. I mean, there is a symbolic component in, in so far as, yeah, you can make sense of the fundamental fantasy once you discover it in analysis, right? It does. It it has all three, but more than anything, the fundamental fantasy is unconscious, and therefore it's in the real, right? It's gotcha. not that you know conscious egoic awareness has access to nor even pre-conscious like symbolic awareness like it's not even something that you have some pre-conscious uh identification with um right okay so that's that's important yeah and so okay so number one just to, just make that clear uh uh fantasy constitutes my desire it tells my desire what to desire in order to get the jouissance it's chasing right on the other hand, and this is the, the most important one of the two, 
is the inner subjectivity thing where it answers the question of the other's desire because my desire is being based off the other's desire, right? The other's desire is still primary and it always is primary for Lacan. Desire is always the desire of the other. So feature two is more primary than the first one. I mean, maybe Zizek should have reversed them in order, but the point is it's like, okay, yeah, maybe it works better. Think about it like this. All right, I have this anxiety provoking, uh, you know, experience with the enigma of the other's desire. I don't know what the other desire wants from me. Totally creates anxiety. I come up with an image, right, of what the other desires. And in doing so, it tells my desire what to desire. Because I desire the desire of the other. I want the other to desire me. And that pretty much involves me desiring also what the other desires. I, I know it's like, it's like this, we just keep saying this phrase over and over again, but well, uh, we use the, you know, it it, means in it. So you have to keep saying it differently to bring out those various meanings. Every, every parent or, 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 or person who's ever take, you know, uh, babysat or, or like worked with children in any way knows that there is a fundamental thing about the desire of the other always in play because like kids will either love or deeply resent that you're interested in something that's not what they're working on already, right? Like if a kid is playing with some toy and you're interested in something else, then they're going to like the, – the kid's entire like activity, you know, it, whether they're being very distracted and completely doing other stuff at that point or whatever. It's always a kind of a respect to that and, and, and also like think about it. Like there could be a million toys in a room and, and the kids are all like just doing whatever. But as soon as like this one kid fixes on this one toy – and it's yep. just like this toy. Then all the other kids want that toy. Absolutely. Right. right? Yeah. It, it's desirable precisely because it's desired. And so, okay, so the third feature, right? Zizek calls this the narrative occlusion of antagonism. But nice. what it means, like, we can just leave that out. What it really means is that fantasy is always a kind of narrative. There's always a story aspect to it. And... Even though we don't have immediate access to like the bare bones fundamental fantasy that's uh, operative in our unconscious, we are aware of our daydreams, right? We, we, we always catch ourselves daydreaming. Interesting thing here, right? Most of us have no problem when we have a dream one night, waking up the next day and telling our friends and family about the dream. It's always fun. Oh, I had this weird dream last night. Let me tell you about it, right? What we won't do is tell people our daydreams. Hell no. You never see somebody, oh, let me tell you about what I was just daydreaming about, what I was just fantasizing about. It's completely off limits. And so our daydreams or our fantasies, in a sense, have a much more intimate connection to our fundamental fantasy. And even if they're not the fundamental fantasy, and they in some way have that fundamental dynamic operative within them. Mm. And so that's why none of us are willing to discuss our fantasies and daydreams with other people. It's like the most intimate core of our being. Um, and the thing with our daydreams is that they usually are little stories or little sequences of events, right? And what Zizek is getting at with this third feature is fantasy is a story that covers over an antagonism or a deadlock. And what he means by that is 
there's some sort of impossibility like right okay like i can never fully enjoy right that's a deadlock within inside within me like i'm always chasing this kind of phantasmatic primordial jouissance and yet i can't ever get it but it covers over that antagonism that deadlock that impossibility and it gives me a, a little sketch a little like a, like a script to live out that tells me this is how i'll get the enjoyment so the thing is there's all kinds of personal deadlocks there's like these built-in tensions in our lives in our libidinal economies in our psyches and we all have sp specific ones to us and fundamental fantasy glosses over covers over them makes them go away in in, in the phantasmatic realm and uh <clears throat> It, it, it gives us a story that makes sense of this, right? So this narrative aspect of fantasy um, basically covers this narrative, this diachronic story, beginning, middle, end. It has a way of uh, uh, concealing a structural deadlock, something built in that we can't get rid of, we can't do anything about. Mm. Now, here's the thing. Some of this seems vague, right? I'm going to come back and I'm going to give examples for each one of these that will help make sense of what's going on with them. So the fourth one that we're going to talk about, Gijek calls it after the fall. But what it essentially means is that fantasy always stages castration. So we've talked about castration, symbolic castration. This is where um, you lose the jouissance that you posit that you once had, but you didn't really have it, but it's when prohibition comes in and you have to sacrifice, basically living for immediate gratification. And this is like the first traumatic loss or lack the child has to mm -hmm. integrate into itself, right? This, it can't, the, uh, Lacan calls it the, the bedrock of castration. Like so much of our lives go back to us feeling like we lack something. Like I, I, you know, I, I couldn't satisfy my partner and we broke up and it boils down to how you think you, what you lacked, right? You lacked money or you lacked, uh, you know, enough emotional, uh, uh, openness, right? There's all kinds of things that you can lack and we're always in some way, shape or form suffering because of lack. And it's like, that's what the whole thing about desire is. Desire is always this pursuit of that which will do away with lack, with with what castration caused. Um, fantasy, as we're seeing, is a way of staging it and making sense of castration. And so that's part of it. When, and when you think about your particular uh, fantasies or your daydreams, think about how often they have some sort of traumatic scenario going on in them. I mean, you can take, you know, the most generic kind of uh fantasy like the damsel in distress right well distress it you know the woman in distress and of course the man the the, the masculine fantasy of course is that uh i have enough fullness right i don't lack i'm the knight in shining armor i have the power and i can show up and i can fill in the void i can i can fill in her lack because i overflow with power with vitality with presence and so, so much of our fantasy life is about who has, 
it sounds too abstract to talk about presence and absence, mm. but it's I have that which you lack or or I am that which you lack, right? It's all these different kinds of dynamics related to lack and filling in the lack in the other. And uh, so- Really quick. So you'd say yeah. four is called what? Four, okay, Zizek calls it after the fall, right? Because he's talking about the biblical fall, right? The fall is you've lost something, right? You've lost the enjoyment you had in Eden. So your enjoyment has been cut off. You've been symbolically castrated by God, right? Adam and Eve. And uh, so he calls it after the fall, but I think it's better to call it the staging of castration. So again, when you think about your daydreams or your fantasies, there's usually some traumatic lack that's going on, right? Somebody needs to show up and save the day or uh, somebody has that which this other person doesn't have, right? There's always some lack uh, that's going on, and there's usually a scenario that explains what caused the lack, right? It could be some fantasy involving, you know, an oppressive government, right, or whatever. Um, it's usually ex explaining why you lack or why the other you care about lacks. It's giving a narrative uh, to lack, which for most of us, Again, we don't realize that we, this this deep sense of lack that we have, we don't realize that it comes from just the basic prohibitions involved in becoming socialized. We think it's it it has this mysterious presence to us, right? We can't figure out this this feeling of lack inside of us, and uh, that's what fundamental fantasy uh, helps to do. Is uh, <clears throat> It helps to explain what, where, you know, it gives a narrative, a staging to this lack. So here, here's the thing. All of that, those are the four main features of fundamental fantasy. Now let's go through and see how this works in an ideological context. Okay, and so here we're going to use Nazism. Uh, this is Zizek's preferred example. And... So here's what happens. Okay, so let's go back to the first one. Transcendental schematism, the constitution of desire. Well, you ask yourselves, what did the Nazis desire? Well, they desired the death, non-existence, removal of the Jews. Right? That was the, the basic desire they had. So then you ask yourself about the second feature, right? Cavoy, the, the mysterious desire of the other. Then it, so the the we contextualize it. You know the the average German, there you know the the society's in a state of decline, and they see that their nation is in a state of perplexity. They see that the people around them are scared and lacking, and uh, they you know so the person's asking themselves, what does the other want from me? Like what does my what does the German nation desire of me what who am I supposed to be for my parents for my uh, friends for my colleagues right all of this is operative and so you know the inner subjective aspect is what does the the German nation including the people I personally know what do they desire of me and so the, obviously the you would go well they desire for me to help they desire for me to do whatever I can to fix the problem but but again you know we go back retroactively to the first one and 
it's saying, oh, okay, it's I need to help, you know, defeat the Jews. It, it giving an answer to that mysterious desire of the other, both nation and your personal uh, relationships with people, right? So then the third one, the narrative occlusion of antagonism, right? So what does fantasy, it, it, again, it takes a structural deadlock and it gives it an image, which is to say it gives it, a, you know, an empirical figure, right? It gives it something that you can perceive. And so what was going on at the time? Well, capitalism was in a state of crisis, and capitalism was ultimately the cause of what was going on in Germany with all of its structural dynamics. Uh, but all of that kind of antagonism, you can't get a grip on that. That, that kind of structural impossibility or structural deadlock, it's too much to, to process. And so what you do is you convert a structural problem into an empirical figure. And so instead of this, you know, impossible to perceive structural deadlock, right, all of the, the dynamics of capital, you take that uh, and exchange it for an empirical scapegoat figure. Right. Ah, now things make sense. Now this I have it. This is the occlusion. What's the word occlusion mean, really quick? Well, it's like a blockage, a narrative blockage of antagonism. But the way I read Zizek is, um, he's saying that it covers. This is where a story with all of its imagery covers over stru uh, structural antagonism, structural deadlocks. Right. Like, uh, think about how Marx talked about the contradictions of capital. Right, those are not empirical reference. Those are structural dynamics that you can't perceive with your eyes. And so, when you know human beings in general, we, we especially Americans because of our ideology, but human beings in general have trouble with structural dynamics. Uh, it's much easier to just, oh, the problem is something I can perceive with my senses, and. You know, it, you know, it, it, this is why scapegoating is so easy to do for people mm -hmm. because systematic problems are way more complicated than just being able to point your finger at some group and go them right there. Right. But but here's the, the, the catch is that if you do that, if you do this scapegoating, it relieves so much perplexity and anxiety because. Now you're not dealing with these invisible structural dynamics. Now it's got an image. Now it's something that you can perceive. And that that's what relieves, right? It covers over these structural dynamics in exchange for an empirical figure. The point is it's all phantasmatic. It's all made up. The phantasmatic Jew does not correspond to actual Jews. And so the Jew is really just the product of the Nazi imagination. It doesn't have anything to do with actual Jewish people. And uh, this is why, because you can always find a scapegoat, right? Every society, we see this in America right now, whenever there's structural problems occurring, there's always some group that they can, they can fit into this scapegoat position to relieve them of anxiety and perplexity, right? It makes them feel better because things become a whole lot simpler when you when you do this through fantasy and so this is how fantasy is operative at the ideological level and uh, fourth right the, uh, the after the fall staging of castration again this has to do with staging the loss staging the lack right well 
before it's like you don't know what the, the, the take the contradictions in capital right and all the dynamics in capitalist society leading up to World War II right you can't explain all of that you can't get a hold of that but uh, if you stage it if you narrativeize uh, if you give it a narrative or a story uh, then you can go what caused us uh, us German people to lose our enjoyment the Jewish plot, right? The Jewish, you know, the Jewish people. And now castration has a narrative, right? Now it explains why you lack. And so all four of these together, you see how strong these four dynamics in fantasy are when it comes to racism and scapegoating and um, ideological fantasy because they, they take all of this anxiety and perplexity and impenetrability and give it all an answer, right? This is why people get so fucking invested in their ideological fantasies because their sense of having, you know, uh, you know, understanding a familiarity with what's going on, being able to, uh, the term Frederick Jameson uses that Zizek always uses as well is cognitive mapping, right? Okay, there's all this shit going on in society. I can't begin to understand any of it. But what these ideological fantasies do is give us a cognitive mapping. It explains what I should desire. It explains what the other wants from me. It tells me a story uh, that you know transforms all of these structural dynamics into uh, an image that I can get a, a grip on, that I can perceive. And it explains why we're all lacking or suffering in the first place. And like ideologies, especially Nazism, is built on this ideological fantasy and you know this is where these kind of things people are willing to die and kill for these kind right. of fantasies and so this is why it's so important to understand this stuff especially in the times we're living in where the point is this ideological fantasy didn't it didn't refer to anything in reality it's just about a nightmare the germans were having right and they, they they're having this this complicated social nightmare and they couldn't process it so here we come and here's a, a fantasy that makes sense of all of it and but but the fantasy that's the point the veils of fantasy they totally cover over they, they, they you know they totally distort actual reality do you have eyes on so, screen say so what you have eyes on screen? Yeah, I do now. So, because I, I kind of summarized the Nazi ideology as example by saying, like, so one would be, you, what, it, what, what, it, what will give me jouissance? Well, a feeling of respect, power, and fullness. Uh, you know, what does the other want of me to become a hero? Um, you know, like the soldier. Because, like, you know, in, in uh, Soviet Russia, it was the, it was the worker. And in, and in Germany, Nazi Germany, it was the soldier. Right, the heroic soldier, and uh, like that was, and you could all, you could you could run the Soviet Russian like ideology just like you know through as well. Like you get the same kind of thing, right? But because yeah. um, it, it, the the basic the basic way this sets up works for almost every ideology, probably every every ideology. But anyway, so in, insofar as it's successful and works for normies within a population, uh, it's going to have to be able to play off of these things, right? And so, yeah, so if this is, Nazis are just like 
the most mask off about it. And it's like so obviously delusional and immature, and immature right? But okay, so respect, powerfulness. Oh, I have to become the hero. You know, the hero's journey. Once again, Jung. Um, and then, you know, so what do you need though? You need a scapegoat. And uh, they, though, they stole our pride slash power slash fullness. There you go. And I'm using the... You want to draw the parallel, right? Yeah. So in, with, with uh, Soviet Russia. So it's not the intrinsic deadlocks built into the state bureaucracy. It's just counter-revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You exchange a symbolic or, or a structural deadlock for an empirical reference. Oh, hold on one second. Hey, chat, how are we doing? Is sound doing okay? What's What's been lost? Is anything lost here? Is it okay? Phaedrus has reported sound lagging. Does that just mean that you're still hearing yeah. things, but that it looks like my mouth is moving when it shouldn't be? Or what, what does that mean? Are we good? Chat, is anyone there? Let's let's hold on a second until we get some responses. That's cool. Okay. We're good. Now it's working. Now it's coming through. There is an interesting lag issue. I don't know what that's all about. But uh y'all are hearing it all right. You're not watching the screen much though, River Ransom. Oh, River missing out on all of my amazing illustrations. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, so folks. Okay, this is fun. And I see this is very useful. So uh, I'm going to put the screen back on the whiteboard and turn it back over to you. So I think that we're kind of nearing the end because if we were to go in any other direction, it would we'd be here another hour or so. Right. Um, I have a question that will help you summarize, I think, but... Okay, yeah, I, we're approaching... Because I, I just want to end by discussing traversing the fantasy, mm. uh, and then we, we can wrap it up with that. But what's your question? So, when we're looking at the formula for fundamental fantasy, mm -hmm. here we, ha we have the divided subject, which is the money sign. And then we have the diamond sign, and then we have the small a. And sadly, I don't have a big enough whiteboard for the stuff we previously had on screen. But basically, we have the divided subject, this, which is it's divided between uh, the imaginary and the symbolic. And, well, and it, it's to say, you know, it's, it's better to say it's divided between language or prohibition signifiers and jouissance, right? And so you would say that's the uh, that's the division between real and symbolic, right? Yeah, that's better. I think I think when we think about the divided, when we think about this relation between uh, Bard S and Objetida, it's better to think about it in terms of symbolic and the real. I don't because imagine uh, imaginary has to do with the ego, and the ego is not in that formula. Okay, this is per your liar. Right, there's no ego here. Okay, good. Yeah, so this is unconscious. So this is none of this is operating at the level of imaginary. This is okay, so we've got symbol we've got the divided subject 
And then right here we got the greater than, lesser than, um, conjunction, disjunction um, symbol. And then this, the small a is the object petit a, is that right? Yep. Okay. And, and that, that missing part of yourself that you think, uh, you think unconsciously at the unconscious level that if you retrieve this lost object, you'll have full enjoyment. And once again, the... I don't even remember the word, but the obsessive and the 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 all uh, the obsessive, the hysteric, the the the, the structures, those clinical structures, the 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 basic orientation of of your your fundamental subjectivity um, is going to be some kind of a twist off of this, or or this 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 plays out in some way, um, and 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 that makes us what we are. Um, or, okay, so this is like a and this this is a, this is a structural thing. A, a, a way of symbolizing basically what you've unpacked here, the this the, of the the four of these of these seven veils, right? Mm -hmm. Could you could you just like I don't know maybe like re-summarize the symbol of these things in in and in, in how it plays out in these four veils that we've discussed yeah, so far? So I think to go back to Zizek's example, right? So here's the thing: um, imagine the Bard S as the German, the Nazi, right? And the little objet ah, the little a, as the Jew. Well, the point is, the objet petit ah is not something in the actual Jew, in actual Jewish people. It's a phantasmatic construction that's essentially being projected onto them. Uh, Lacan talks about this as the in you more than you, right? It's it's not something people people actually have. So here's the point that Zizek makes when it comes to scapegoating the other which we see happening all the time. So here's how it works. Uh, and, and we can add this on to the ideological fantasy. So what? how the Nazis fantasized about the Jew, right? We talked about <clears throat> feature three, which is where you exchange like structural dynamics uh, or deadlocks for empirical. Or, and empirical means like it's imagistic, phantasmatic images um, of the other. And so here's how it works. The Nazis, there's one of two ways they viewed the Jews. It was like, okay, uh, they either are depriving us of our enjoyment. They're the, the cause of our lack, right? They're what's castrating us and uh, forcing us not to have enjoyment. And so that's one take. The other take, and you find this with any group that's scapegoating another group, it's not it's not necessarily they're taking our enjoyment. It's that they have an excessive amount of enjoyment themselves. Like either way, there's this inequality of jouissance. Like either they're taking our enjoyment from us, or they, for whatever reason, have access to some like intense enjoyment that we don't have. And so this is why the scapegoats are always hypersexualized. White Americans hypersexualized black people. Nazis hypersexualized Jews, right? You always see this, and Zizek points out that one of the one of the indicators that you're dealing with this kind of scapegoating fantasy is that the scapegoat figure is always contradictory. So Jews were presented as dirty ghetto dwellers, but also sophisticated genius physicists, right? And the Nazis didn't catch any of this. Well, what do we do? What, what, what do you see in America with conservatives, right? Well, Mexicans are these lazy, 
uh, people who take welfare and they're clogging up the system with their laziness, but at the same time, they're far more industrious than we are and they outwork us and they take the jobs we won't take. There's a fundamental contradiction in the view of like the migrant worker, just as there is with the Jew in Nazi Germany. And it's almost as if like reality, the real itself is like paying us back. It's weird. It's like we're, we're being paid back for our stupid scapegoating fantasies. Like we're, you know, there's all these structural dynamics at play that are causing our problems, but we exchange all of that complexity for the simplicity of a phantasmatic image or scapegoat. But it's like we betray ourselves. It's like we can't really pull it off because every scapegoat figure to any, to any outside observer is ridiculous. Like it's like, you want to say to the conservative, make up your fucking mind. Are Mexicans lazy, you know, people who sit around and just take welfare or are they super industrious people who outwork us? You can't have it both ways. And, uh, same thing with the Nazis, right? The Jews are these, gross, uh, you know, unclean ghetto dwellers, but they're also these suave, sophisticated geniuses that seduce our daughters. Right. Right. Scapegoating fantasy is occurring when you get these contradictory figures. Right. And, you know, we both love that example from sublime objects of ideology, right? Where you've got the person who's got the, the Jewish neighbor, right? And, and this is a, a wonderful neighbor, and 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 you've got the person who's got the anti-Semitic, like ideology, but and and they 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 get along with their their good Jewish neighbor, but in their in their mind they're like ah see this is how sneaky they are that they will come across as this good as this friendly nice neighbor, right? Absolutely. So everything that you perceive through those ideological filters serves as confirmation bias. So it doesn't matter if it's contradictory information. Everything, this is why the whole media, so this is why all of this Lacan stuff is so useful for me in thinking about critical media theory. It's like, what does the media fucking do? It, it, it feeds different ideological frameworks. They have their own fundamental fantasies, um, constant confirmation bias that basically it, it, it's resentment fueling in, the, in, in Nietzsche's sense of resentment. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, here, I'm going to give you a, a sense of, uh, of, of intellectual and moral, uh, you know, uh, superiority. You're a beautiful person. You don't need to change at all because look at these deplorables over here. And so it will pick out like the lowest common denominators of the other, whether it's stupid or cunning genius, either way, and be like, look, oh, look, it, yeah, here's an example of something evil or despicable. Oh, look, here's an example of something of, of something totally stupid. And, and the more they give, they patch this, this figure of the other, the scapegoat, together for you that confirms your little bubble that, oh, now I don't need to change. Oh, now, you know, oh, I, I consume MSNBC and look how stupid these, these protesters are uh, who are protesting the, the stay-at-home orders. Uh, they're, 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 these people, they're deplorable. They're, they're degenerate. They're, 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 right? It's really, really, really easy to, to, to take, to, 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 to take the, the product of, 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 of a system, which is these, these normies who've been constructed as, as well, as stupid. I mean, they, they really are usually pretty, pretty dumb. But, I mean... Hey, so I, they're the product of a system and we take the product, the effect, instead of as a symptom, we take it for the problem, right? And, and, and because they're so stupid and evil at the same time, 
we feel just by default superior intellectually and morally speaking, right? It's just very easy to, to, to play into that. But if you're consuming Fox at Fox News, then it's the exact opposite. They're still picking like all of these. It's so easy to go and pick out contradictions, to find contradictions in the other's ideology because ideologies are inherently contradictory, right? Mm-hmm. The ideology is the opposite of, ph- of philosophy in the sense of like philosophy wants to explore those contradictions. Ideology wants to cover up those contradictions and tell you, no, 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 nothing to see here, nothing to think about. Just go with it. And, uh, and uh, you know, CNN and MSNBC feel, feel non-ideological because basic liberalism is hegemonic, right? Oh, empathy is inherently good. Listening is inherently good. Um, um, shows of strength or force are inherently bad. Um, anyone who prioritizes the other over empathy, oh, is they the, they're the bad ones, right? Or, or, or anyone who is uncouth, anyone who comes across, uh, 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 so anyone who like calls the establishment bad. Oh, well, they're talking about us. Okay, they're, they're just being mean. Oh, they're just bullies. Now I can't tell the difference between Trump people and Bernie people. I can't tell the difference. Why? Because that base, liberal, symbolic fantasy like framework is one that's going to, oh, well, I call, I call, I call evil anything that's, that comes off as, as mean. Right, yeah, and, and, and that's because it's the ideology of 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 the of the nurt, of the nurturing, like the nurturing. So 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 anything that com- seems contrary to that is is bad, right? And that's the thing. I mean, Zizek's point is, you are at your most ideological when you think you're not in ideology. Those whenever you think you're at an idea or an activity that's non-ideological and fights ideology is where you should be looking for ideology at its most effective. And that's the thing. Everybody is ideological except me, except like the subject, right? Everybody else is duped biology uh, by ideology except me. And this is why Zizek's always emphasizing the movie Fight Club, right? He's like, no, to do ideology critique is to beat the shit out of yourself. It's very easy to kind of see this stuff operative in other people. The question is, what are you, what's your ideological fantasy? What is what are your ideological investments? Like, what are you libidinally invested in in your society that helped you reproduce that society, right? And so, he's saying you got to kind of take the scalpel to yourself uh, to do ideology critique properly. But you know, you, I just I want to say a couple things uh, before moving on to traversing the fantasy. One is. What we were talking about, okay, you mentioned it. The way I like to word it is when it comes to ideological fantasy, disconfirmation is confirmation. And what I mean is ideological fantasy, Zizek calls it the frame, right? It's like you perceive the other through this specific framework. It's like you're seeing it through a certain, you know, it's a good example is a filter, right? Like you put a filter on a photo to change the photo. You perceive the photo through the filter ideological fantasy is like that so for the the nazi operating with the nazi ideological fantasy they perceive the jew actual actual jewish people through this filter with through this phantasmatic frame and that fundamentally alters the perception of actual jewish people and it's like you project the phantasmatic image of the jew onto actual jewish people and so no matter what a Jewish person does, this fantasy frame can always 
bend it back to confirm your phantasmatic image of the Jew. So the way that Zizek talks about it, he uses the example you mentioned, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Uh, Mr. Stern, the Jewish neighbor. And so let me actually read this. He, uh, he goes, uh, that is why we are, uh, this is from Sublime Object of Ideology, and it's on pages 49 and 50. So he says, that is why we are also unable to shake so-called ideological prejudices by taking into account the pre-ideological level of everyday experience, right? We Like some sort of like mythical outside dimension of ideology. He says, the basis of this argument is that the ideological construction always finds its limit in the field of everyday experience that it is unable to reduce to contain to absorb and annihilate this level so basically the most ideological thing is thinking that there's some sort of brute everyday reality that can destroy your ideological fantasy he's saying that's what is ideological or distorting so he goes mm. on let us again take a typical individual in Germany in the late 1930s who was bombarded by anti-Semitic propaganda depicting a Jew as a monstrous incarnation of evil, the great wire puller, and so on. But when he returns home, he encounters Mr. Stern, his neighbor, a good man to chat with in the evenings, whose children play with his. Does not this everyday experience offer an irreducible resistance to the ideological construction. So you want to say, well, see, he would he would encounter uh, the goodness of Mr. Stern. He would go see uh, Jews are not like what I'm being told in the media. That's all bullshit. And now I'm getting I'm getting beyond my ideological fantasy. No, he says this actually works in favor of the scapegoating fantasy. Why? He says <clears throat> the answer is of course no. If everyday experience offers such a resistance, then the anti-Semitic ideology has not yet really grasped us. Here's a great quote. An ideology is really holding us only when we do not feel any opposition between it and reality. That is, when the ideology succeeds in determining the mode of our everyday experience of reality itself. How then would our poor German if he were a good anti-Semite, react to this gap between the ideological figure of the Jew, schemer, wire puller, exploiting our brave men, and so on, and the common everyday experience of his good neighbor, Mr. Stern. His answer would be to turn this gap, this discrepancy itself, into an argument for anti-Semitism. You know how dangerous they really are. It is difficult to recognize their real nature. They hide it behind the mask of everyday appearance. And it is exactly this hiding of one's real nature, this duplicity, that is a basic feature of the Jewish nature. So Zizek concludes, an ideology really succeeds when even the facts which at first sight contradict it start to function as arguments in its favor. Beautiful. You found it. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's some of his, I, you know, I've read, what, 20 of his books, and I think some of those passages from that chapter are some of the best he's ever written. Um, but, okay, so, we, you know, we have this image of what's going on, right? The 
you know, there's all these structural problems that work in society that are causing us to suffer, uh, suffer, i.e., suffer. That's a, suffer. a Freudian slip, right? Uh, what what is what does suffer link up to? Suffer. I don't know. I'd have to <laughs> on it, see where we go, and it's like I'm not giving you access to the truth of my desire. We're <laughs> so, gonna get to the bottom of your desire today, Michael. Yeah. So okay. There's all these structural problems causing us to suffer, and i.e. lack, and i.e. to be castrated, and you concoct this image in your head that makes sense of it, and so yeah, the Jew is, you know, to use that the 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 formula of fantasy, right? I think it would be something like, it would be the greater than sign, right? The the fundamental fantasy would be. Of the of uh, the Nazi ideology would be for the Bard S, the German subject, to become greater than that objet petit a, and the little a in this sense is the one who has stolen my jouissance, objet oh. a, my objet a. So the fundamental fantasy is for the Bard subject to become greater than the theft of our enjoyment, the the the, the thief of our enjoyment. Right, because the small a is the object cause of desire. Uh, right. uh, uh, yeah. it's, it's the jouissance that you unconsciously posit that you had to give up in order to become socialized. It's what you sacrifice to become a, quote, human subject. And it's that concentrated, uh, intense enjoyment that, like, you have all kinds of enjoyments throughout your day, but they're not it. They're not the final enjoyment, the bit, you know, the jouissance with a capital J. And, well, why don't I have that perfect enjoyment, that full enjoyment? Well, somebody stole it from us and stole it from my family and from my nation. Uh, and so you, you, it's like you project your OJ petit a into Jewish people as if they possess it. And that's why. It's like okay, the the German subject wants to be greater than the the the, the objet petit a in this sense, right? It's to to annihilate them, make them small, defeat them, so as to gain. Uh, uh, I think it's the other way around. It's a uh, no. You're right. You're right. I'm I'm tripping. You got it. Oh, you're and, looking at the whiteboard. Yeah, I just glanced at it. Um, no, you're right. And so and then I put I put the I put the those echo bracket or parentheses on the uh, on the small a, and there you go. That's that's Nazism in a nutshell. Uh, you got the divided subjects greater than the small a, right? So, <clears throat> it's the the ones who the thief of the small a, the thief of enjoyment, the ones who have stolen our enjoyment or enjoy excessively at our expense. By the way, uh, illegal and freeze saying. Dang, dude, you are helping me so much. This is exactly what we were studying, but through a Freudian lens. This explains so much more. Yeah. I'm glad it helped. There were a few times up above that Illegal and Free has kind of said that over the last couple hours, tying this into a class that they took and uh, how this just goes so much further and is so much more useful than than the basic way that people will typically teach psychoanalysis, you know, which is usually just like a, a sort of bastardized Freudianism. So, mm -hmm. no, and I'm, I mean, the, I, I, that's why I love Zizek, right? I mean, 
he's the one who shows how all of these Lacanian concepts work at the social level, the ideological level. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's there in larval form in Lacan, but Lacan, again, time and time again, one of his refrains is, hey, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not, like, a theorist, I'm training analysts for the work of analysis. I'm training people to become psychoanalysts. All of this has to do with the clinic. And, I mean, of course, you know, people would sit there and go, well, he can say that, but a lot of it has to do with philosophy and ontology and all this. But the point is, he never thought he was engaging in philosophy. He, he wouldn't say, oh, I'm doing Heidegger or Deleuze, what, you know, what they do. Uh, his, his, his was much more focused on, I'm training people to be able to help relieve suffering in the clinic, to help people who have symptoms that are out of control or have hang-ups or you know any kind of psychical problems and so all of this stuff is focused on the analyst dealing with people in their radical idiosyncratic singularity right as subjects and mm -hmm. like it's so much harder like i can't i have no idea what your fundamental fantasy is i have no idea what i mean yeah i have little indicators of mine but i don't know it for sure because i've never gone through analysis but you see how much easier it is to see a fundamental fantasy at the social level. Why? Because it's not so, it's like you have so much comparison to go off of, right? You can you can start to see like the Nazi fundamental fantasy, the Stalinist fundamental fantasy, the, you know, uh, the capital, like you can go through them because we all are much more aware of this generic aspect of society. It's basically like the ideological fantasy is the fundamental fantasy of a society, not of an individual person. And it's it's much easier to draw out the fundamental fantasy of society. Uh, to do it uh, on a personal level, again, it would take years of analysis to work through this, but that's what the power of uh, Zizek's work is, is showing how we can use all of these uh, Lacanian concepts geared towards the clinic to also explain social reality. And so... I just want to close, you know, the one thing you'll always hear Lacanians and Zizekians talk about is traversing the fantasy. I think it has a almost a mythic status now. Um, and yet, if you ask for a clear answer on what that means, you often don't get it. And so, again, you know, I know I've been more quote heavy this, this lecture than last time, but I think it's important just to see what Zizek says. It's very good. Words. We and appreciate it. It's good. Yeah, and so I got two examples, and I'm going to read them in full here. One is from the ticklish subject, and the other is from a vent. And the um, second one's a bit longer, but here's the one from ticklish subject. This is on page 58. He says, okay, well, before we get into it, so the whole point is traversing the fantasy, right? It sounds like, okay, I have this fundamental fantasy operating within me or uh, this fundamental fantasy operating in society, um, I guess the idea is to get beyond fantasy entirely, to live without fantasy, and to just perceive reality itself. But that's not true. The whole point is you're always going to have some kind of phantasmatic frame, some sort of perspective through which you experience reality. Um, so it's not about just abolishing fantasy entirely. So here's how Zizek puts it. Traversing the fantasy precisely does not designate what this term suggests to a commonsensical approach. 
getting rid of the fantasies of illusionary prejudices and misperceptions which distort our view of reality and finally learning to accept reality the way it actually is that's not what it does for Zizek he says in traversing the fantasy we do not learn to suspend our phantasmatic or phantasmagorical productions on the contrary we identify with the work of our imagination even more radically in all its inconsistency that is to say prior to its transformation into the phantasmatic frame that guarantees our access to reality so let's be clear on what he's saying here it's not that we ever just finally you know once we it, it's easier to do at a social level it's easier to go oh I see that I have some consumer fantasy that's you know determining my desire right or I have some fascist or some Stalinist or whatever right that's easier to do um, because it, it's geared towards the generic side of yourself but your actual fundamental fantasy the idiosyncratic one that determines your individual libidinal economy the point is it's something that you can't fully integrate into your sense of self right because once you're confronted with it it's almost embarrassing that your entire life has been geared towards this stupid little image in your unconscious that you concocted and how you've basically tried to live out this thing your whole life and it's in a sense it's humiliating it's it it, it causes a sense of like being deflated like holy shit my whole life was about this this is so stupid and so it's not so much you identify with it like how you do with your mirror image or with the you know the the things that you like the identification more has to do with a confrontation with it like holy shit this thing has been unconscious and now I'm consciously registering what has determined the whole history of my desire and his point as we're going to come to see is just simply seeing the fundamental fantasy for what it is involves a traversal of it so he's not at he doesn't flesh this out as much in the quote from ticklish subject but he goes more into it in this quote from event and this is from pages 28 to 30 bit a little bit long but it's worth it because he he goes into more detail he says insofar as fantasy provides the frame which enables us to experience the real of our lives as a meaningful whole <clears throat> the disintegration of a fantasy can have disastrous consequences right so the, the whole point is your fantasy holds together your very life your desire right if your fantasy somehow becomes shattered say some tragic event happens and the fr fantasy frame is broken this is not liberating it destroys you right he says a loss of the phantasmatic frame is often experienced in the midst of intense sexual activity this is an interesting observation here one, uh, one is passionately engaged in the act when all of a sudden one as it were loses contact disengages begins to observe oneself from outside and becomes aware of the mechanistic nonsense of one's repetitive movements in such movements the phantasmatic frame which sustained the intensity of enjoyment disintegrates and we are confronted with the ludicrous reel of copulation right think about like this moment in during sex where the phantasmatic element the context right all of that collapses and it's just you and the other person and what your bodies are doing right 
Like it's, as he points out, it's like ridiculous. Uh, you need that phantasmatic context for sex to be passionate. And if you lose that, then it's almost this weird, disgusting, awkward set of movements that, you know, like, like disgust you. You're just like, okay, the reel of copulation, as he puts it. <clears throat> so he continues, what psychoanalysis aims at is not such a disintegration of fantasy, but something different and much more radical, the traversing of fantasy. And while it may seem obvious that psychoanalysis should liberate us from the hold of idiosyncratic fantasies and enable us to confront reality the way it is, this is precisely what Lacan does not have in mind. Traversing the fantasy does not mean simply going outside fantasy, but shattering its foundations, accepting its inconsistency, right? Part of it is just seeing coming to terms with what your fundamental fantasy is masking, what it's veiling, right? Just simply recognizing what it's doing is, is this huge kind of realization, right? So he goes on, in our daily existence, we are immersed in reality. And again, for him, reality and, Lacan, and for Lacan, reality is our imaginary symbolic world, right? It's the world of language, custom, ego, it's all that kind of stuff, right? It's not the it's the imaginary and the symbolic are together what they call reality as opposed to the real which again the real has to do with all of these various dynamics the the unconscious drive jouissance all of these things fundamental fantasy that we're not aware of right that are out of sight that are not immediately present as part of our waking social reality so uh, sorry to pick it up again in our daily existence we are immersed in reality structured and supported by the fantasy but this very immersion makes us blind to the fantasy frame which sustains our access to reality to traverse the fantasy therefore means paradoxically to fully identify oneself with the fantasy to bring the fantasy out here we can see what traversing the fantasy can mean not to see through it and perceive the reality obfuscated by it but to directly confront the fantasy as such once we do this its hold over us is suspended why because fantasy remains operative only insofar as it functions as the transparent background the unconscious uh, of our experience fantasy is like a dirty intimate secret which cannot survive public exposure so traversing the fantasy really just means bringing the fantasy to conscious awareness and identifying it it's not that you integrate it it's it, again it's this humiliating thing that, that deflates your sense of self like oh my my whole life's been based around this dumb shit but the identification has to do with with that realization that your whole life's been based around it and that it, it's been operative throughout your whole life without you being aware of it and the whole the whole point is the very moment that conscious awareness gets a grip on it that that the unconscious fantasy becomes conscious it doesn't work anymore it's stupid it's ridiculous it's just it's some arbitrary little image or or narrative that got established early on but it's so contingent and you know this is where the, the, you you face this like uh, subjective destitution, right? You feel like you've been emptied inside because you realize that 
what's been the most extimate thing, like the most intimate thing, is some dumb external image that you at the conscious level wouldn't identify with to begin with. It's just an image. It's just a, a little narrative. And uh, yet it's, it's been destinal, right? It's, it's, it's shaped your whole life. And once you realize this, though, the fantasy doesn't work the same anymore. I mean, this is part of um, psychoanalysis. It's not that every every time something from the unconscious is made conscious, it uh, ceases to be effective. But in this case, Zizek is arguing that fundamental fantasy, that is how it works here. Where once you, once you get a clear vision of it, once it's made conscious, once you understand what's going on with it, it can't really operate effectively anymore. Because you've had this confrontation with it, and it's no longer stuck in the unconscious doing what it does. And uh, so this is, I mean, it, the, the takeaway from this, again, you know, to do this at the individual level, you'd have to go through analysis, and that would be years. But it's really important for us to do this at the ideological level with our, with our ideological fantasies. Um, because once you do see how the ideological fantasy is working, Right there's the problem. Like, you know, the, the 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 Nazi, the German guy in Zizek's example. Right, he can take uh, his Jewish neighbor and turn it into an argument for the fantasy. But what the you know, so he's having this experience of the neighbor, but it actually reaffirms the fantasy. What the German needed to do was confront the fantasy itself and see it for how arbitrary and ridiculous and contradictory it is. And that would be the breakdown in the Nazi ideology, would be an identification or confrontation with the fantasy itself, not what the fantasy is about, like the, not the empirical referent to the fantasy. You would have to con confront the fantasy itself in order to get past it, to tra traverse it. So I think with that, I'm, 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 I think we're kind of done for the night, right? Oh my God! Uh, first, let's give it up for Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah, no, that was this was a good time. I really do. I really do appreciate it. Um, there were some there were some great comments, um, but I kind of actually want to just close it off right here. So, folks, listen. If you had any questions uh, that you felt weren't answered, or if you had any insights that you wanted to see make sure michael saw those and could respond to get them into the discord let's uh let's get the uh let's get the link back in there one more time really quick and uh we'll we'll share that before we close out um any any quick orders of business before we do close out i think i have a couple here um you know neither of us really understand lacan fully um, but the more you under, the more you try, the better it is, right? And so, so I, I, I get a lot of, uh, I, I find that very useful. The fact that so many people are finding this helpful, um, even though obviously it's like, there's so much more here that we, we can't unpack. You know, this is a lifelong project of a person who like a ton of his work still hasn't been translated. Amazing. So your ability though to to put this in such a uh, clear language um and to be able to uh relate it to to things that we already kind of know about like that's it's really helpful and i i find 
I find that real. I just really appreciate it. Looks like everybody else in chat is too. So, so thank you. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, you know me. Like out of all the philosophers that I love, I'm, I'm right now focused on Lacan more than any of them. Uh, and I think I, I've told you before. I, one of the main things I've been interested in is the question of human subjectivity. What is it to be human? And just personally, I don't think anybody in the history of humanity has actually formulated a more detailed, nuanced theory of human subjectivity than Lacan. And I think all of the great Freud, uh, insight to Freud, I think Freud is so distorted in, in theory circles that even to get the, the truth and the impact and the insight of Freud, you almost have to get it through Lacan because there's so much confusion and uh, misrepresentation of uh, Freud's insights out there. So... Again, I just love psychoanalysis, and uh, I love philosophy, and I think that Lacan has uh, just an abundance to teach us about human subjectivity. So that's why I'm sold on his work. Absolutely. Oh, ah! <laughs> um, I'm laughing at my sound effect that you didn't hear, but you'll you'll hear it later in the in the when you watch this later. But um, the, the the last thing was uh, harpoon lobotomy had said is is a the concept of the thing being absent from self or the concept of the thing or both either depending on context and I would just clarify neither and that Michael has his most popular blog post is about that concept. So do you want to just like talk about that as a closer so that I can link the link that in the chat? So yeah, I mean, so the OJ Petit, it is since, in a sense, you're right, right? I mean, it is, it's the lost object that operates, I, Lacan doesn't use the word psyche, but we do, and I think it's helpful here. And it's not a real object, not, a, not an actual object, but it's almost as if it becomes incarnated in objects of desire, right? It's it's that um, X factor, the je ne sais quoi, right? That, that it, that certain objects have that cause us to desire them. And so, yeah, the, uh, the, the little a is the concept of this, um, it, I, you know, I, I get this term from Deleuze, but I also like to call it a virtual object. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's this weird little virtual object that is the effect of language more than anything because to integrate into language, you have to take up rules. I mean, there's the syntactical rules of language, right? You have to speak a certain way to be operative within language. But the whole point of language, uh, the, the first real meaningful instance of it for Lacan, which if we do this again, at some point we'll talk about his concept of the Oedipus complex. Mm. Um, the first real meaningful linguistic event is what he calls the paternal metaphor. And it, it sounds overly complicated, but what it really has to do is it's the first instance of substitution, right? You, the, the child has to substitute the mother's desire up until, you know, this moment. The, the child's whole existence has been based on the mother's desire, right? Being Having a union with the mother, being connected to the mother. And at some point, some third person steps in, the, quote, father, and says, nope, this can't continue indefinitely. Uh, you have to separate. And this is where you exchange the mother's desire for the name of the father. 
and all that amounts to is you have to give up the immediate gratification you share with your primary caregiver and accept social normality social protocol law and this is the first substitution one thing is given up for another and that is like the basic linguistic mechanism right is you know there's substitution and um because of this like you lose the immediate gratification and you pause it i also like to talk about it as a ghost okay but is like this ghost of an enjoyment that you think you had but you never had it's, it's a pure ghost right because it's not like you had some alive living enjoyment that then was killed off because of prohibition because of law no it's it's a the uh, it's a pure ghost right it's not it's it's a it's an enjoyment you posit or, or presuppose you had that you want to get back but you didn't really ever have it it was never that good um and so it's just the effect of uh, the fact of language coming in and language mediates everything right it's, it's a whole system of mediation of relations and prior to that it's like you were wrapped up in a kind of immediacy uh bodily immediacy and but you, you, you want like the ghost of that and so that's what the little object is and so I, I go into that in the blog posts and um, there's a lot of other examples I give of trying to make this concept of OJ Petita intelligible so mm. yeah if you want to know more on that one check out the uh, yeah you posted the link in the yeah, I dropped the link. So this has been part two. Part one is available on every podcast app imaginable. If you just look up Theory Plebe, uh, it's the most recent episode. You'll find part one there. But it's also a video and the I, the whiteboard stuff. Uh, if you find that helpful, then part, do check out part one. I know at least one person who's watched it three times already. Um, so there's a lot of people who are watching this now, watching it over and over again until they think they understand it. And then they're, 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 they're going to revisit it in a year and then realize, holy shit, I get this so much more now than I thought I did like a year ago. And it'll just it'll keep snowballing and it gets better and better with every go, I promise. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I also think the same thing of, of this essay that we have highlighted on the screen. Lacan's concept of the object cause of desire, object petit a, which is, which is, well, object petit a, which is uh, Michael's blog post. Definitely check that out. There's a ton of other ones that are shorter and more accessible in some ways. If you're not trying to do a deep dive on Lacan and you want to do something that's more like, hey, let's do a Heideggerian takedown on Ben Shapiro, or let's talk about the fire festival and how Baudrillard actually applies to it because people kept misapplying Baudrillard to the fire festival. There's all sorts of ways that this, this blog is just amazing and really useful for thinking about things. Uh, but this is definitely the deepest dive that's on the blog. It's a very long, very long, very well thought out. Um, in, in, in trying to explain one concept, uh, Michael has to basically bring in the rest of a, a, a ton of the other concepts. And so uh, hearing it and hearing these things put in different ways, you'll find that very useful, I think. So, so with that said, I think we're done here. Thanks so much for joining, Michael. And uh, I look forward I look forward to doing this again someday. Yes. Sounds good. Um, good next, night. Good night. Take care. Bye-bye. Everybody else, just so you know, uh, a week from now, today, I might do Introduction to Philosophy Part 2 at, at, on this day and around this time. But um, I'm not making promises about anything at this point, so... 
<laughs> Y'all have a good rest of your night. Take care. Like, 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 follow, subscribe. If you like what you just heard and want more, make sure to subscribe at nspublishing.substack.com. That's nsppublishing, nspublishing.substack.com or patreon.com forward slash the dangerous maybe or patreon.com forward slash theory plea. All three of these are good ways to stay in the loop with the work that we are doing and help fund our campaign to hashtag free Mikey. Today we need thinking. 